Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. BFG, how are you? Hey, Bowman. How are you doing? Good, buddy. I asked you first. You did. And right now I'm just uh, finishing up my uh, dance to the uh, theme song there. Mm, I heard you chipper in there. What do you think of that? Is it grown on you more than the first time we played it? It's, I think it's my official, you know, uh, going on investigations, breaking into house kind of Mission Impossible kind of soundtrack to my life, you know? How often have you broken into a house listening to that music? Not yet. Hmm. But you, um, you aspire. It, it might be coming. I might have to sneak into a house to find some evidence, you know? Like, you know, sometimes you got to go, go, go that extra mile, you know, like all those cops on, on TV do, you know? And, mm. and how they don't get p- p- penalized for, for doing things <laughs> like that, like doing the real life. So you're just hoping that <clears throat> the law will grant you an opportunity to listen to uh, Gershwin as you break into people's homes? Absolutely. And also, you know, like, you know, just for the fact that, you know, a guy's been like pretty much scamming people, you know, for, for, for years and years and years, just begging, you know, like, why can't I get away with that? You know, so. Mm. Hey, anyway, look, buddy, it's the what? Are we on the 16th? Is it the 16th or the 15th of April? I, I'm on holiday. So my, my brain is mush when it comes to the calendar. What are we on Saturday? It is, it is the Ides of April, the 15th. The Ides of April. I don't, actually, no, I think the Ides would be on a different day. Though. I think it would be on the 13th in the month of April, if I'm not mistaken. Did any... I need to look at my ancient Roman calendar again, I suppose. Did anything auspicious happen at that time? Probably not. Mm. Oh, the the uh, the possible uh, event that brought down the Roman Empire from within, the uh, birth of the Christianity. <laughs> ah, yes, indeed. Um, I wasn't even thinking along those lines, but... Of course, I should have been because you're absolutely correct. I think of the big picture, my friend. Big picture. You are a broad spectrum kind of guy. Spectrum is a good way to put it. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, just not. Moving, <laughs> I'm not. Just uh, uh, moving on there, though. You know, I got that great imagery, you know, from like Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, where like <laughs> as soon as Jesus dies on the cross, or forgive them, Father, for you know what what they, what what they they do. You know, and then God's single tear comes down and falls from earth and falls on <laughs> Jesus's head. And then we've got this amazing, like, kind of Marvel, Marvel supervillain zooming all the way down to hell. And then, and then, and then Satan going, no! <laughs> Did you ever see the uh, the South Park episode where Mel Gibson uh, hijacks the, 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 the truck, or I think it's a truck, a transport truck, and blasts through the, uh, the town? No. Uh, it's it's an early one. It's You know, it's it's one when they were still... When they were still using kind of like um, cut and paste faces of celebrities for their celebrity satire instead of you know proper animation that they oh that's a long time ago yeah it is it's it's pretty funny it just happened to be on TV a few uh, few months ago and I caught it and 
I remember that now. I'm 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 picturing like you know Mel's face and with with like that jaw opening up and down, opening up and down, you know, while he's talking, right? <laughs> That's it, yeah. And and sounding like like Kenny instead of like uh, or Stan, and sounding like Stan instead of sounding like actual Mel Gibson. Well, I can't remember if if they took because they've done this before, you know, they they actually take sound clips from like films or interviews and they just make a script out of that. <laughs> Matt Damon. Yeah. Hey, oh. That reminds me, um, before I forget, we've got um, three stories to talk about today, but before we, yes. get, it, before we get into the Sherlock Holmes thing, um, we, oh, oh, I just lost my thought. Holy shit, it's way too early in the show to be losing my thoughts. Uh, go get your pipe, go light your pipe, and uh, or, or get mm, some uh, mm, 7% solution, mm, that'll get your thoughts back. Uh, whatever, it'll come back to me, but... I digress. Yeah, so it's April. I'm on school holidays. I go back on Tuesday. It's been a nice time over here. The weather's been pretty cooperative here in Scotland. It hasn't rained too much, but it, you know, and it never gets that nice in Scotland. You know, if it's a sunny day in the spring, you're looking at 16 degrees, and that's nice. Aye. But it's been good enough to get out and, you know, take lots of walks and hang my laundry. And I figure that's a sign of good weather when you can actually hang your laundry outside. I think in my end here, I think winter's done here in the Ottawa, yeah. in the Ottawa area. You said that though. You said that a couple weeks ago, um, or a couple months ago, or a I month was incorrect. Ago or something. Yeah, you got dumped on again. We had a mild February, and I guess we paid for that with like Sheila's brush taken to the hundredth um, exp- exp- exponential. I've never been comfortable with that expression, Sheila's brush. It sounds like some reference to pubic hairs or something. <laughs> well. The Irish, it's an Irish thing, I guess. So, I mean, I, you know, work, we're, we're work with that and just you can kind of see where, where it came from. <laughs> I just assumed that Sheila was the wife of St. Patrick and uh, she was pissed off about all his party and stuff and decided to, you know, screw the boys over at the, afterwards. Because hmm. St. Patrick had a wife, obviously, right? So Well, obviously, yeah, obviously. Um, yeah. You went in a different direction than I thought you would with that. Really? Mm-hmm. What direction did you think I would go into? I thought you'd follow me down Pubis Road. Oh, Pubis Road. This doesn't really appeal to me at the present moment. At the present moment? Yeah. I'm I, I'm more into like seeing if I could take me down to possibly Coffee Road on the next break, on our first break perhaps. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll continue on that trail. Pubis Road just doesn't really, <laughs> I don't know, float my boat. It doesn't float my boat either. It's just, you know, you're talking about Sheila's Bush. Like what am I supposed to think? Brush. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. That's different. Whose mind's in the gutter now? Oh, my, my, my mind's never left the gutter. Oh, oh, okay. So you'd be pretty much down in that opium den, hey, just with, <laughs> uh, with, the, with the last car and, uh, and uh, what's it called? The gold bar, hey? You'd just be like content with uh, your uh, wallowing in your seediness. Maybe. We got to talk about that seediness when we get to that story because there's some mixed there's some mixed signals going on in the opium den and certainly the Victorian's relationship with opium is one that's worth investigating. So I'm looking forward to exploring that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, look, buddy, we got three stories to do. We got two hours to do it. Let's um, uh, let, let's get chipping away here. Um, we are mm-hmm. now a full chunk mouthful into the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We're starting with stories Number, story number four today, as published in October of 1891, we're going to start with the Boscombe Valley Mystery, and then we're going to go on and read uh, one of the most famous uh, Conan Doyle stories, is the Five Orange Pips, and then we're going to finish off today's episode with The Man with the Twisted Lip. Mm-hmm. 
out of if, if if you could say right now at this present moment of those three, what was your favorite? Favorite in scoring or favorite in reading? Hmm. Like, are you asking me which one I think is better or which one? Which so one I'm asking I you. I'm not asking the numbers. I'm asking Bowman, Scott Powell, Esquire, uh, yeah, Esquire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I would say which one would I recommend over the others? Y- yes, that you would sure? be like. I, are you sure you want to have this chat now at the start? I think I, I think it'll be good okay. to set some groundwork here. All right, that's fine. I of of the three stories, the one that I found most engaging, uh, not necessarily for the right reasons. Uh, I, th- I think the five orange pips might be the best of the three, but uh, the man with the twisted lip is interesting. I liked all of these, man. I I don't I like them all for different reasons, and the scoring yes. the scoring's not quite. It, it wouldn't really reflect what I'm saying, um, but. I don't know. I'm not. I, I I gotta I gotta flesh this out before I'm comfortable separating the two or the three of them. I've got scores. Yes. I got scores. Fair enough. I'm I'm gonna I, defer. I, I, I'm gonna defer for the moment on that question. I of think yours. I'm going to defer as well. And I was wondering if you were on the same uh, level as I was in that way because I found that there was something great about each one of these stories, and there was something that I you know I had issues about but for each of them. But I think I enjoyed almost all of them equally in in the same way. Um, we'll see how the scoring kind of. Reflects that, of course, but as in terms of personal enjoyment and the scoring and all that combined, I, I don't. I, I found there was a lot of ambiguity to how much I, I, uh, I, uh, I enjoyed these stories. All right. Well, should should we just get uh, get, get straight into it then and start with the Boscombe Valley mystery? Indeed. So, what's the uh, publishing details on that, Bowman? Uh, what can you tell us? Well, uh, appeared in October 1891 edition of the Strand Magazine. Uh, each of these, remember the, f- the first 12 stories basically came out in the uh, over a calendar year, m- one one a month. Uh, that's that's basically it, October 1891. It followed A Case of Identity, which was published in September, or sorry, in August, uh, yeah, September. And uh, I don't know, I got a lot more publication information than that. Um, I got a few opinions about what, what people thought of these stories, but I figure we can uh, we can leave this, leave that to... To later on, unless you want to, you want to talk about it now. Um, well, what I could do is, uh, I, uh, what I'll do is, I'll just uh, maybe I can run through an out an outline um, about you know the the, the Boscombe Valley mystery itself, and then we can kind of see you know so we'll, we'll kind of present you you know what this, the what the overall you know story of the Boscombe Valley mystery um, entails, and then we can kind of see some reactions to the type of story that it was. I think that would be a good way to explore it, and then we can kind of. D- dissect it kind of a different tactic but uh, it, might, it might work all right with different with, with varying degrees but we'll see with varying degrees yes i agree yes it won't necessarily jump out but i mean the the, the critical reactions i have aren't like uh, big reviews of the time nothing nothing really sizable like that just uh, uh so there is no boucher kind of style no, here no, in, uh, no um, i mean um, as i said back uh, we started this it was really tough to find extended critical literacy on this stuff in context. So, I mean, you know, in the 1890s, it wasn't a lot of critical journalism being written about uh, Conan Doyle's stories. Um, it, it did retrospectively appear, but not really of the time. And so I've been looking at different sources online and kind of like public forums and chat rooms and stuff like, you know, reading websites and what people thought of fan sites and Goodreads, and, you know, the, the more popular places you would expect to find people's opinions right um, a more con- a more contemporary view i understand yeah more or less so um... do, do, do you find like with each one of these stories especially the short stories i find that i i find i, I end up for, just for the sake of analysis i guess 
I read them twice. Do you? Mm, I read I read them over. Uh, I don't read them twice and then sit down. Well, do no, I, I do a thorough read originally, and then I kind of do like a skim of certain parts, right? Uh-huh. Uh, because um, I find that I guess because of the because the, they're in smaller articles, it's almost good to approach it a second time with these short stories in a way because you get a clearer kind of once you know where it's where it's leading to. I think you can really appreciate by just reading it over again. Um, just how the structure just comes together, and how how it, and how everything is so tightly wound by Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, let's talk about that tight winding. Yeah, you, I guess we get, you get to see you know the DNA's helix unfurl of the narrative. I guess is, is the way is the metaphor that I would use. All right, BFG, take us through it. Then here we are, the Boscombe Valley mystery. Do a plot summary. All right. So Watson is chilling with Mary or his wife or the wife or whatever he calls her now. Um, when the maid, is this the same impudent maid from before interrupting them like a like <laughs> a little scamp that she is? Uh, but she, no, she appears with a telegram. So she has an excuse. Uh, a new game is afoot and Batman needs his Robin. Batman, Robin, sidecar. They had that last going on when... Um... He was throwing incendiary bombs through the windows. Yeah, well, doing his Bart Simpson impression. <laughs> All right, okay, keep going. Yeah. So before you can say Biff, Wham, Pow, uh, our man Watson is conflicted. Um, but Mary is a pretty groovy gal slash um, she, she's a possibly Sherlock. She's probably a closet Sherlock John platonic shipper. And, <laughs> and she tells him to take a vacation. So the spice of this bromance must flow. So Watson goes on a holiday of murder. Watson arrives at Paddington Station at the nick of time to hop on a train to Ross, a little hamlet in the Boscombe Valley outside of Herefordshire. Whilst en route into the English countryside, Holmes gives Watson the lowdown. James McCarthy is a young man facing charges of homicide against his father, Charles McCarthy. Old man McCarthy was found with his head caved in after a somewhat uh, publicized row with his son, the accused. It turns out McCarthy and his partner, John Turner, are the biggest landowners in, in the Boscombe. Also, both previously lived in Australia. Now, something tells me, I don't know, this, that this has some bearing on what is about to transpire. Um, it looks pretty bad for young McCarthy as a young maid witnessed him cursing at his father, as well as raising a blow before his professed walkaway after the scuffle. For it is in this window that his father, of, of opportunity, I guess you'd call it, that his father is bludgeoned. Not having a lot of uh, hope based on his lack of alibi and presumed motivation at the time of the murder, young McCarthy seems properly screwed and does not much of, have much of de- de- defense to the coroner's charges. Also, want to point out, newspapers back then, they were pretty detailed with line-by-line court transcripts. I found that quite, you know, you know, Watson had about, in his newspaper article he was reading, there's about two or three pages of court transcripts to read through. I'm just amazed, you know, back then a newspaper would use that much ink, you know, there wasn't exactly, you know, a resort, like a, um, a, a bottomless pit of resources when it came to that kind of stuff. So I'm surprised that there was so much, so much uh, article on the inquiry itself in a local newspaper of all things. Well, Fleet Street was home to a lot of, a lot of gossip uh, rags too, you know, so I think, I think they were, 
at the but they weren't in Fleet Street though. They were in some local town in uh you know in in Ross or whatever. Yeah, but what I mean is like the the, the culture was to report and to get into the gritty details. You got a printing press now that's been around yeah. for quite a while. People are getting these stories. There's still no TV soaps. There's still no Jerry Springer. So it, as long as it's legal and stenography is becoming you know more pronounced, I guess as a profession, then there's a readership that wants that stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. Or the, the 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 you know the extended court transcripts and uh, you know in, in, inquiry coverage could be Arthur Conan Doyle using a medium to kind of present the story. Yes, he might be somewhat elaborating. You know, oh, sorry, over what's the word? Over elaborating that um, whole uh, newspaper angle. Maybe, but I. I... Well, I don't know, actually, but I think I, I'm not. I'm not saying in terms of you know I'm not being critical or anything, anything like that. I just found it uh, funny, and I just, just, uh, it's just, it's just. I think it's just an example of you know. I think we'll counter them more and more is how he's able to use different mediums to tell the story, either through people's letters or people through describing things how they happen, and then you hear, and then of course while they're describing things, it's almost as if you're right there with the person. It's almost like it's almost like very cinematic in that way, where it cuts to the flashback. You know what I mean? I understand what you're. Okay, I'm sorry, dude. I'm I'm not on your wavelength. You're talking about the way the story is told here. Yeah, I got you. I I thought that you were you were um, suggesting that maybe Conan Doyle was using the, some creative. Uh, hyperbolic license in sh- in sharing court transcripts that that kind of stuff wasn't done, but that was all public. That was <laughs> oh. all public, right? Yeah, the fact that you that the fact that, that came to your mind indicates uh, how colossally um, um, weak I presented my <laughs> statement there. No, Sorry it doesn't. About that. No, you you got around there at the end. I just um, I thought you were talking more about the fact that you know he probably wouldn't have had access to that information, but I think it was there. Like you could access court transcripts and i think they were published in for big cases in the newspapers well, yeah i guess anyway we digress big time we do Let, we let's digress get back on the we train digress here. let's get back to uh young mccarthy and his troubles but um we anyways we learned upon arrival they learned upon arrival in ross uh where lestrade is waiting for them confirming that sarah turner daughter of, of mccarthy's aussie compatriot john turner is in love with young McCarthy and has requested Lestrade to prove his innocence. Lestrade, physically and genetically predisposed to being unable to consider the very idea that a suspect <laughs> may be innocent, has hired Holmes to do his legwork for him. Naturally, Holmes is up to the task and we can get our usual presentation of scenarios, alibis, clues and deductions as the truth is eventually revealed. Holmes has figured it all out, of course, and while Watson does admirable work with his medical background, um, no, Holmes got this. Everything leads up to 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 a uh, awkward to, pause. Yeah, to an awkward pause. Yeah, where I don't recognize my own writing. <laughs> well, it happens every now and then. So we learn that basically the killer ends up revealing himself at the Ross Inn. He presents himself to Holmes at the awfully convenient moment of the revealing of, of Holmes about to reveal to. Um, Kind of a kind of a uh, comical moment in a way where Holmes is about to reveal the the, the murderer to Watson, and of course the um, the um, hotel attendant announces the killer's arrival at the same time. So I I found that kind of funny. 
But um, what we learned basically is that John Turner, the old landowner and partner of Charles McCarthy, wasn't always a country gentleman. For reasons, McCarthy was one. Um, Turner was once a highwayman in, in, in Australia, accruing his fortune through nefarious means. When he and his Jesse James gang of the opposite Coriolis effect hear about, gold con about a gold convoy coming from Ballarat to Melbourne, they get all good, the bad, and the ugly on that shit. The bandits clash with the Redcoats leading the convoy. Three of his boys go down, whilst the only survivor is the wagon driver, the dearly departed Charles McCarthy. But it turns out Turner... Ha, <laughs> Turner, no pun intended there, um, despite his hardened ways, was a good man deep down and spares McCarthy's life. But this act of mercy bites him seriously in the ass when after returning to England, quite rich with his gold, Turner runs into McCarthy and his son. And with the eloquence of Randy Quaid in Christmas Vacation announces to Turner <laughs> that the shitter is full. In other words, he has just told the proverbial Clark Griswold that he has no money and I know what you did and you're going to look after me and mine. So the extortion goes on and on. Turner has to suffer this Boris douche culminating to the possible marriage of young McCarthy to Turner's daughter. Turner will have none of this, of course, and snapping from his distaste for the man and the entrapment piled on with, with overhearing the violence in which he bade his son to court Turner's daughter, Turner waits for McCarthy the younger to leave and rids himself of a pest once and for all. So this confession, uh, young McCarthy is exonerated and fate offers the deathbed or the gallows to, um, to Turner. So Turner takes, of course, the former. And that is the story of the Boscombe Valley mystery, essentially. That is it. Yep. You did that a nice it. job with that. I was just thinking about, um, <clears throat> about Christmas Vacation. And wouldn't, wouldn't um, an equally effective scene that exemplifies this relationship be when Clark and um, uh, what's Quaid's, what's, what's his character's name? Clark Griswold and... Oh, I would know. I, I was just, I was streaming for that. I was when I thought of it. I oh, was, that's I was thinking of, of, I've seen of that the name show of the like every year. I watch that. What is it? Hey, it don't matter. Is, when they're in the grocery store. Is it Andy? Store. Is, is it Andy? Is no. it? Uh, no, if only not. our viewers, if only our viewers in our studio studio audience could respond back. Mm, well, we don't have an audience. Um, we need like a Paul Schaefer or something, you know, to talk to. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, we like, need uh, a Paul Schaefer. I. Uh, wow, shit. Anyway, remember when they're in the grocery store. That way store. he can look after the um, the uh, music and you don't have to worry about it, right? Mm. They're in the movie store, or they're in the grocery store in the movie, and he's talking, and, and he's like talking about the gifts and how he doesn't have anything for his kids because he's thinking Santa Claus is just going to, you know, bring all the presents. And and then Clark's like, you know, let, let me help you out here with that. And he goes, oh, you're awful good to me. You know, it's that type of shit. Yeah. Anyway, that was a long, painful, butchered way to uh, just say... I liked your example. I love, well, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's a thought and heart that goes into mm. it. That really matters. But you know what really solves all these problems in the end? Those, those, those four magic letters, I M D B. Ah, indeed. Uh, Did you find out? Crazy Randy Quaid. Randy. One moment here. Randy Quaid plays somebody Griswold. What's his name? Eddie. Eddie, right? Okay, that's it. Eddie. Cool. I'm really glad we got that important part of our of our episode done. Um, yes, it's still relevant to the world of Arthur Conan Doyle mm, and Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. the great literary detective. Indeed. Look, uh, you know, we've got a number of different ways of doing this. Um, what what I can tell you about how the story was received at the time, I've got. Well, I, I had three sources uh, that were commenting on this edition of the Strand. 
Uh, neither one gave that I could find gave a really extended review of the story, apart from saying things like thrifty, okay, hmm. thrifty, um, like average. Cheap? Sorry, deep average. Okay. No, 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 no. I didn't finish that expression. I thought you you had something to say. No. No. Okay. Um, average entertainment. Hmm. And seven out of ten. That's what Goodreads? No. No, these, these are the uh, the sources I had from the strand of uh, the October 1891. Oh, I, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised, I guess, or just, I guess, my my own ignorance. They use like a, um, a rating out of 10 kind of structure even back then. Well, I'm, you know, there's nothing more to it than that. So I, I couldn't find the, quali- uh, you know, the, the qualification to that. It's just, that's what I found. So hmm. I have a Goodreads information, though. <clears throat> Yeah, what what do our our contemporaries at Goodreads have to say? Well, there's one. What's the name? I got the name written down here. Um, where is that name? Oh, I can't find the name. I've got the quote, but I don't have the name. Um, more. Oh yeah, quote here it is. More boring than most, but better than some. Now, how useful is that as a review? Boring. Yeah, that's it's, the word it's, it's of, a stu- that's the word of word. an entitled millennial. <laughs> it is, yeah. You don't have to explain it. You don't even have to understand it. You can just use it. Exactly. Boring. Uh, but on the Why average the average good read what? rating was what? a 3.8 out of 5. Now, if you think about that, 3.8 out of 5, that's about a 76% out okay. of 100. That isn't too far away from the Victorian 7 out of 10 that I found. No, it's not. So, so it's, it's kind of kept its same kept popularity its average since uh, since that time period, the critical and, po- and popular average. But please recognize, anyone listening, that this was not uh, a thoroughly exhaustive search. While I try to find publication and critical uh, you know, information on, the, on, on these stories, and it will become easier, I think, as we, as we go on, um, I know that you're not the rotten tomatoes of uh, no, of book of, of book criticism, Scott. I appreciate that, uh, but I, you know, because we we did we did the the Fleming series uh, on all the you know, Fleming Bond books quite recently, and there was all kinds of stuff to sift through there, and we made that a really big part of the show. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming to the I'm coming to the ring without without my full kit here when I don't have a lot to share on this front. But I just there's just not that much out there. In yeah, you're con- hitting the mat the quite a bit. Of, uh, yeah, well, I, I know I'm hitting the mat, buddy. But what I'm trying to say is, it ain't Tyson's like got it the ain't like ear. it ain't like James Bond novels, which were really popular. These stories, while they were popular, just weren't written about in the same sort of journalistic way. And I, I, I can't find a hell of a lot of stuff. That's what I'm trying to say. And so I think that I think that just points to I, I, I just in terms of you know comparisons like the 1950s and 60s. Uh, cultural literacy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, give me give me a break. Um, a break is given. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, buddy. I think, like I said, it'll be easier as we go on. But that's why I'm using Goodreads and, and like other reader forum sites and stuff like that. And the average Goodreads is 3.05. So, yeah, we're, we're talking about a story here that's, that's well-received. And it was well-received at the time of publication as well. Just, uh, you know, not enormously, uh, breathtakingly awesome, you know? Yeah, well, it just seems like lukewarm, kind of like an average kind of story. 
Um, well, I find, I, it, first, I find it more I, interesting. At first, I though. found this story just kind of just like, okay, all right, yeah, you know. But then if you look at it a little bit deeper, there's some like really neat am- am- ambiguities and ideas that Quinn uh, Doyle is exploring here. And I, I think that will, I have a couple things I want to say about that once we, you know, we delve into the pipes about the matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'd like to delve into the pipes. And it's my hope that, you know, you got nothing more you want to say. We can just do that. Yeah, I, I think um, one thing I'm really learning about these, especially the short stories, is on the, there's a lot of there's a strong surface level that you get up front with these stories. But if you dig deeper into them, there's a lot you can there's like layers and layers you can peel off that you can explore with each one of these stories. And I think how Conan Doyle, you know, constructs these, um, especially in the time that he that he wrote them, like in the time, the, the, the amount of time that he took to, to write, write them, I mean, to say it was quite extraordinary. Yeah. You're like one one a month, lots of stuff going on here. We've got uh, we're gonna mix it up a bit today, buddy. Instead of lighting the pipes with the, um, you know the the pipe sound that we love to play and celebrate, we're going to do something different. This was the very first Sherlock Holmes story, apart from the novels, that included a murder. And so, in lighting our pipes today, we're going to give a salute to the murder. I can sleep With some screams of pain. Are you happy with that? Was that uh, the dear Mr. McCarthy getting his head stay stoved in? Mm, I think the the sound file probably included more more voices than two, uh, more victims than one. But yeah, let's, I was let's, honestly let's expecting a, a, a I was honestly expecting a true like Willem scream there. But uh, you shouldn't have was... expected that. I mean, people people don't tune into the show for professional touches they, they come for the amateur gold amateur gold it's and a diamond what, in the rough that's what we're going to continue to deliver anyway uh lighten the pipes yeah you want to uh really quickly explain what this acronym stands for so we got uh the first p we got is for the principles so our dynamic duo holmes and watson how they relate into our scoring and in, in, in their presentation in this in the story then we have the I, which is investigation. So this is the case itself, with also criticism of the um, of of the actual writing process of 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 the of the, of the story as well. Mm-hmm. On top of that, we have the the next P, uh, which is for the perpetrators. So we deal with the suspects, the villains, the antagonists, so to speak. And then we have E for our environs, the you know um, the locate the locales the are they exotic? Are they intriguing? Um, the descriptions of such places, is there some good writing in, in that in that respect? Do we get some gold passages from Doyle there? Uh, finally, we have the S, which is our supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and how they relate players. to the story and how they, and how they stick out and, and uh, influence the narrative momentum. Well, I'll tell you, buddy, um, I've got... Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I think we should just, you know, try to swift our way through these and have the conversations appear as and when they do. Um, I'm going to start by telling you right off the bat that in this story... You're giving away the fact that there's no structure to any of this. It's totally a structure. You just went through it. Oh, I did. Yes, that's true. Um, but I mean in the sense of like, we're not, we're, we're, we're not even supposed to cop to the illusion of a structure. Well, no, I guess you're right. But we're breaking the fourth <laughs> wall everywhere we go. We break the fourth wall, indeed. 
This was a story for me right off the bat. I liked Holmes a lot. I thought Holmes was on great form. I thought uh, Watson was boring, dull as tits. He didn't do much for me at all in this story. He was a bad... This was like a bad Robin episode. You know, like those the, the old Batman show where Robin would really just be there making some stupid comments and not doing anything. This was one of them. I think as a whole, I think for the characters anyways, it was for the for the principals, it was kind of a dull affair in both men. Home was that was that was that was solid and you know, but nothing really remarkable. And 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 Watson, you know, I think he did have some moment where he was trying to employ his medical um feeling, you know, his 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 his, his medical knowledge to the situation with, with the body and and the coroner's examination, but beyond that, he pretty much just like read a novel while Holmes went to go speak to McCarthy in the jail with Lestrade, and Lestrade did more work than Watson did. <laughs> he did actually, yeah. And this, and this is, is this, uh... and this is and this is this is Lestrade. <laughs> so far as Conan Doyle has sketched him, actually like working on the part of exonerating someone. So that in itself is uh, kind of interesting. Where Lestrade is almost the Watson in this scenario. It kind of is, yeah. And he he pro- he provides the kind of antagonistic rebuff that Holmes feeds off, you know? Yeah. I really, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the Robert Downey Jr., Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes films, but the portrayal of uh, that Eddie Marson does, does of uh, Lestrade is pretty close to the novels. Whereas I find like on Sherlock, he's almost more of like a buddy to, a reluctant buddy to Sherlock in a way. I haven't seen the Guy Ritchie film, so I can't really share in your your comment there. Um, uh, I'm, I'm I do getting... recommend them. I do recommend them if you want a real kind of like comic book presentation of the Holmes mythology. They're entertaining. Uh, I'll give them that. So they're they're worth a look, and you might find some some good stuff in there, especially how they take the, all the mythology of all the characters throughout the stories and they condense it. It's kind of interesting. So there's a lot of Easter eggs you can pick up, you know, as like a Sherlock Holmes fan. Okay, I'm I'm not so sure. Consider, I'm, I will consider it. Uh, I would just say that this series and you know the, the reading of the Sherlock Holmes um, novels and short stories. This is still something that I, I don't know if I'm a fan yet. And I've done mm. two, two novels, six stories in. I enjoy them. I really enjoy our shows. I like our chats. Uh, I'm having fun ranking and reading and analyzing the story. I'm building up a, a huge collection of teaching resources. Because I'm also trying to look at this selfishly from a professional point of view. How can I make <laughs> how can I make this work for me? I want to yeah, become yeah. better at you know at, at sharing good good writing, and it is good. Like yes, I'm I'm a Holmes fan. I am a Holmes fan, but I'm not uh, I'm not at that level where I'm going to go search out everything with his name on it and watch it and listen to it. You know what I mean? I'm I'm going to have to like my my wife has been on me to watch um, the Sherlock show, and so I've been watching that and enjoying it. But I'm not moving through that too quickly because I don't want it to jump step on my uh, on my reading. And even yeah, though, even though you say that it probably won't, I I just kind of like going at it at a you know slow steady pace. And yeah. I'm just not sure that I'm a fan yet. Capital F, you know. Um, capital F fan. I yeah. understand. I certainly am an admirer, and I enjoy what we're doing. Uh, but I'm not I'm not sure I'm a fan yet. Some of the but stuff. You, and and I think you did that make I, that you did. Yeah, I was gonna say you did make that. Uh, uh, outside media you know uh sacrifice for the sake of roger moore though uh i did but that also had something to do with the fact that because my daughter who's uh, 18 19 months almost doesn't sleep properly and i say properly she's a baby like some do some don't 
she, well, not quite a baby, she's a toddler. But because she doesn't sleep through the night, I'm up at 4.30 anyways. So, yeah, if I'm up, my body clock is switched to getting up early. Watching Roger Moore as Sherlock Holmes at 4.30 in the morning isn't what I would call searching out an opportunity to be entertained. It's, <laughs> it's a little more like, how can I pass the time while not actually standing on my feet? And uh, it worked, yeah. That's good that's, stuff. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, right. I, I gave stuff. I gave the principles in in this a three out of five because I thought Holmes was really good. Watson was a dull squib, didn't do much for me at all. Uh, but I, I think we should talk maybe just a couple of moments, not too long, but a couple of moments about them and what they do. Uh, do you do you want to go into that? I've got a couple of sections here where I can read, but do you do you want to say anything about that with your score before we do? I was three point five. Um, I found Holmes, like I said, he was he was on his A game and he was solving the case and whatnot, but really the whole structure of the of the investigation depended upon the australian backstory exactly and yeah there was no real way for anyone any reader going into that to pick up any pieces or clues to 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 the conclusion of of who committed the the, the murder you know like it's not until you learn about the background of john turner that you realize you know and by the time of his confession like i hadn't and in, 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 in that particular in that you know like i just found that um it was it was kind of going back to like the older kind of study in Scarlet Sherlock Holmes, with Watson kind of not really having a little bit. He has a little bit of agency, but still not still 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 not enough, especially in comparison to to the next two 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 stories. So you think maybe, yeah, I, I'm I agree with you, and maybe Holmes should have swung at an extra half point, but I'm going to stick with my three just because. By this point in the relationship, I want to see more teamwork, and I didn't see it. And so I think Holmes on his own here is great. But, uh, and yes, it's still, the, pro- it's still the Holmes show, but Watson didn't do very much. Yeah, he didn't really do much, no. And so that, that, that's my take. But you got some passages you want to flesh out, so let's we can take a look at that. Yeah, well, it's not so much fleshing them out. I think you did a nice job of summarizing how they behave. But it's just another one of the sort of Holmes uh, getting the one over on Watson type thing. Um, <clears throat> this is when he's talking about um how to uh, when Holmes is talking about as he does in most all these stories a moment of you know here's how you should be observing things and he yes. he, he says to Holmes he says to Watson uh to take the first example to hand I very clearly perceive that in your bedroom Watson the windows open upon the right hand side and yet I question whether Mr. Lestrade would have noted even so half an evidence thing as that how on earth my dear fellow I know you well. I know the military neatness that characterizes you. You shave every morning, and in this season, you shave by the sunlight. But since your shaving is less and less complete as we get farther back on the left side, until it becomes positively slovenly as we get round the angle of the jaw, it's surely very clearly that this side is less well illuminated than the other. I cannot imagine a man of your habits looking at himself in an equal light and being satisfied with such a result. I only quote this as a trivial example of observation and inference. Therein lies my meter. And it's just, and it is just possible that it may be of some service in the investigation what lies before us. There are one or two minor points which were brought out in the inquest which are worth considering. And he goes on, right? That that idea, you know me too well, he says, to think that I'm boasting when I say that I shall either confirm or destroy Lestrade's theory by means which he is quite incapable of employing or even of understanding. <laughs> yeah. um, like th- this so, type, this type of stuff, it, it it sounds, I guess, in modern parlance quite like something you'd expect Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory to be gone about, you know? 
Yeah, and not to mention, like, uh, I don't think, like, you I mean, you could say, you know, like, to Lestrade, you know, like, Watson could go, oh, boy, do you want some aloe vera for that burn? But really, <laughs> Lestrade wouldn't understand what the hell he was talking about in the first place. No, he wouldn't, he wouldn't get it. And so, yeah, there's a couple of moments like that where, um, and, and I still feel like this is Conan Doyle trying to speak to new readers as well about how intuitive his character is. Because in another year or so where people are d- demanding for this character to be brought back to life, we're not going to need, perhaps, maybe it'll still be there, but we're, we're not going to need as much of the, let me explain to you why I'm so clever. You know, like, I still feel like there's a bit of an introduction here, a bit of character development going on. Yeah, we're back in the study in Scarlet, uh, even sign of four, even somewhat even sign of four territory, where we're yeah. reestablishing the characters with each story still. Like, it has that episodic structure more so than that serial narrative, you know, that I see slowly kind of becoming more and more. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a feel of the original no- or the first novel here. Um, it was nice though to see uh, <clears throat> Holmes and Lestrade work that way. I don't I don't know that Lestrade is ever going to become a principal character, but I kind of would like to see him act a little more out in one of these stories. Uh, I yeah, I could read other stuff, but to be sh- to be to be fair, I'd I'd like to share. Um, other stuff when we get to other parts of the, the, yes. the pipes. So I'm going three, you went 3.5. I'm happy to move on to investigation if you want to. Yeah, I was just saying about the investigation. Uh, the, the clues, you know, they all lead and, and they're very, they're very, very buried and they're not easy to pick up. They lead to the backstory that Arthur Conan Doyle has concocted to support the narrative, right? The Australian yes. story. Yeah, you're 100% so, correct. Without the backstory, this is just a, a pin the tail on the donkey game. Yeah, exactly. And, and and one person's are like, you know, the the dice are loaded, right? Like that's the whole thing. Yeah. The house always wins in this respect. So it was very minimal approach to fleshing out the persons of interest in this case. I I did like in many ways that both like Turner and McCarthy were vile people in the end in their own different ways. The the lengthy transcript of the inquiry seemed wedged into me. It's almost like that Mormon storyline, but just not as as, as a narrative device. Yeah, it just seemed like kind of forced in there just for the sake of. But now I, I I kind of take that back a little bit because I see it as a device that Conan Doyle uses to tell a narrative, and you don't mind that. It's just like it's when you have like backstories dependent upon. It's kind of like you know like a Star Trek episode where there's this problem that they're dealing with, and the and and the solution to their problem isn't some kind of like logical science fiction to solve the solve that issue. It's Oh, these gods did it. These whimsical gods did it, you know. And that's just, just that's, that's how I feel about about like the Australian narrative or like the Mormon narrative is that the whole investigation is framed around the backstory. It is. Um, I'd like to say something to that. Pick up on what you're what you're saying here. Australia, uh, much like America, and we saw this in Study in Scarlet and India, I mean, as a colony, uh, we saw this in the Sign of the Four. Australia fascinated Victorians, much as we have seen, uh, well, as you would expect it being a penal colony, right? Because of its history yeah. um, and its reputation, its reputation within the Victorian um, culture was very much like the Wild West is in the in America. You know, it was full of outlaws. It was 
uh, commonly held suspicion that Australians in Britain during Arthur Conan Doyle's time were you know, frequently involved in violent crime, petty theft, just not trustworthy people. And um, I think that kind of explains why most, why both men in this story, even the, the, the so-called victim, is still morally corrupt. You know, like they, they needed to have a bit of badness in order to be Australian at the time. And I think that's really important in the context of what you're saying, because the backstory in uh, the Australian backstory here, uh, like the Mormon backstory, both involved an otherness, a foreignness that that came in and the Indian uh, story in the sign of the four, like these all gesture towards colonial experiences that somehow have ramifications for characters within London or Herefordshire or wherever it is, you know, and in this case, we've got Australians who are pretty bad outlaws, uh, but one of them's more bad than the other, you know, and I, I just yes. think, I think that, I know that maybe this doesn't really fit in what you're saying, because you're talking about it as a narrative device, and you're absolutely right, having this other story, this foreign story, imp- imp- implemented as a as a feature of narrative, but I guess from an entertainment point of view, he's using this to engender a readership because, and, and to gain, I guess, a readership, because they would have found this stuff really quite fascinating. You know, an Australian highwayman who's, who, who, who steals a gold uh, cargo wagon on its way to Melbourne or wherever it's coming from. Uh, and then, you know, he takes, he takes the wagon driver with him who kind of agrees to help him out a bit and then he can't shake him loose and he has to kill him so that he doesn't take over his estate. Like th- there is some real fascinating stuff going on here. Yeah, I, I do like, th- yeah, I think what made me give it a 3.5, the investigation with the story, isn't the investigation itself or the cases or even the, you know, like the, the backstory. I think it's just the thematics of the story itself to me, like the idea of, you know, the ambiguity of these of these two people, one being, you know, this, and I know we're kind of going into the perpetrator territory here, but they both have reasons for what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they're both vile in their own way. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're both being kind of, what's the word dehumanized by the colonial experience that the, um, that the, you know, the English people are, are having at the present moment, uh, in terms of, uh, of, of Australia, you know, mm-hmm. but, to me, like, I think that was the strongest part of it was, and the whole thing about how, like, you mentioned it about how, like, the ramifications of these acts in these colonial territories has upon, you know, like, their their time, you know, back home in, in London or in, or in England and how it ca- their past catches up to them in, in this respect. And uh, I did like kind of like how in the end how, the, you know, the... the how kind of Arthur Conan Doyle worded it was about how, you know, the dark cloud of the, of the, of their parents' past allowed young Turner um, and sort of young McCarthy and Miss Turner to kind of, you know, live and live in happiness besides that once their two ambiguously evil parents were out of the way. Yeah. And we are just waiting for those parents to get out of the way, aren't we? In, indeed. So, in in terms of, oh, I went a three point five as well for investigation. So we're right on the same points there. Um, there wasn't really anything narratively here that we haven't seen before, uh, and it was kind. Of, like once we got that backstory, it 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 made sense that you know John Turner was going to die and leave the kids happy, more or less happy. Uh, I did find though the, the this the son was a bit. I don't know. Well, I'll I'll get to him when I talk about James. I guess. Uh, anyway, perpetrator. Uh, sorry, 
yeah, the perpetrator, John Turner himself, Blackjack Ballarat, uh, as he was better known at the in the time of Australia before he left his criminality behind. Technically, he is the perpetrator because he's the murderer. But like Jefferson Hope from a study in Scarlet, his motives are a little bit noble, or I guess at least they're understandable. He wants to safeguard his daughter's future, and he wants to ensure that his estate isn't corrupted by McCarthy. Uh, shortly after his confession, he dies in prison. Like we said, that's pretty predictable. Uh, McCarthy is the victim. He's the one who's killed, but he's not innocent because, as you nicely pointed out, he basically holds uh, Turner and his estate at ransom. Um, yes. And it's it's a it is the fault. It's it's being bitten the ass, as you said. Turner bitten the ass by letting this guy come along instead of killing him, uh, or just leaving him, you know, with the empty wagon. But it's also in a way, it's also karmic justice at the same time. And it I'll is, get into yeah, that. Yeah, it is. It's karmic justice. You're absolutely right. He's a mixed character, McCarthy, not necessarily deserving of death, but at least this way, with both of the fathers gone, like we were saying, the kids can enjoy each other and live on the land in happiness. Um, James. The son is really the innocent man who's accused of murdering his father. I, I don't, I don't like the way he he appears in the story. He he tells this tale. He accepts that he's you know he looks guilty, but he says he isn't. And Holmes really jumps really, on that. Yeah, and he doesn't really fight for himself. You know, yeah, so he, he doesn't. He doesn't fight for himself in prison, and he doesn't fight for himself. For but Holmes does make that either. point. And if Holmes does make that point though about how. Um, just the very fact that what he said to his father and how he treated him and in, 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 in the last hours, he just felt guilty about it, I suppose. And yeah, and, you're right. Yeah, so, so he's just shows, just shows how much of the influence McCarthy has on his son and, and how intimidated he, uh, he, he intimidated his son. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. on how he intimidated his son and definitely put some bad light on McCarthy, who one could view in many ways is kind of a victim in, in the sense of circumstance. And let, let me just present this to you. We don't, I find that Arthur Conan Doyle and maybe it was an audience of the time and, and the morality of the time that someone like Turner, a reformed highwayman uh, who becomes a gentleman and tries to do that and become his life way. Whereas McCarthy, you know, this poor guy with nothing left whatsoever um, decides to blackmail his friend. He's more kind of portrayed as the villain or, or, or supposed to be felt as the villain than, and in a way where he kind of gives um uh, Turner the what's the word uh no not not word Jefferson he's almost like portrayed as Jefferson Hope in the, in the study of the scarlet in, in in this context when I don't think that's really the case here I mean think about it we never get McCarthy's perspective on anything that happens we have this so he, obviously he was probably a member of the redcoats who are taking this gold from Melbourne to um, from from Ballarat to Melbourne, so he was employed there. He was the driver, right? Mm -hmm. All of his friends are killed during the attack by by uh, Turner and his men. Turner loses some of his men. Turner decides to spare his life because you know, you know, like he's a good guy deep down, or he believes he is deep down. McCarthy probably lost his job for being being the only one to let left the blame by the by the security company that did the gold or was it the redcoats they never quite say if it was if it was like a uh an official like well there was troops right so you would you would assume that that uh, mccarthy was a troop a trooper right well he would no he was just a wagon driver and he didn't lose okay. his job he left he left his job because they they decided to go in in together on stealing the gold 
Well, I mean, he had no real choice in the end, though. I mean, he, in, in in many ways, right? Because he spared his life. So okay, yeah, okay, fine. But he, he was t- he was still in some way. Yeah, so he did get in on the gold and stuff. So that definitely you know shows his character that you know like he, I guess he wouldn't be too attached to to his comrades who were just killed in front of him. He was just basically like the poor driver. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I just think there's there's. It's a McCarthy one-sided side, story, side, yeah. It's a one-sided yeah, it has, story. has his own side of the story. And again, like you said, I don't think he deserved his uh, his uh, bloody end in that fashion. Well, if and this was, Turner if comes, this... comes off being kind of like a, a snobby prick, too, in his own way, going like, well, I don't want you with my do- with my daughter, your son with my daughter. I don't want to mix your blood together, you know? Like, this guy has ambitions of being a gentleman when he's really not a gentleman at all. Well, kind of. I read Turner a little different than that. I, I didn't see Turner having a great objection to the girl or his son's... Oh no, no, that's the girl. It's just, it's just the blood. It's the blood of McCarthy itself. Mm. It's the that essence of the man himself that he reviled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, sorry, McCarthy. Yeah, I, I guess. <clears throat> well, if, if this had been given a treatment like a study in Scarlet, and we had gone back to Australia, or even if we had had more of Turner and McCarthy as adults living in England together and getting yes. more dialogue between the two characters, we would have had an opportunity to flesh out who was the villain and who wasn't so much. Of these two yeah. characters, and maybe more sympathy would have been generated for McCarthy. But as it's told to us, it is a short story of one-sided perspective. Um, they're both kind of gray characters, but Turner, because of Conan Doyle's decision, um, comes out looking a little, a little shinier. Yeah, basically, like we have, you know, we have, you know, Turner, who's a young man. He made bad decisions in his youth, but he still aspired to be a gentleman in his own way you know he's robbed and killed his and uh stole gold and you know and lives off unearned wealth you know and, and as a path to redemption mm-hmm. and see that whole thing about you know stealing gold and go living off it and then becoming a good person like to me it's like that that you're you're still denying you know what what you are in that respect you know take responsibility you know in, in that way but so what but did you regardless, go for you know mccarthy is a desperate man who is also a sociopathic blackmailer as as it turns out so you know, karma has delivered upon Turner in this fashion. So they're both deplorable in their own ways. But as a whole, you know, as antagonists and whatnot, uh, in their own way, both victim and and uh, perpetrator, I, I give the perpetrators four on this one. Okay, I was only a half point behind on 3.5. Um, I would like for there to have been chiseled out a little bit more clarity on which one I'm supposed to support more. But mm. I, I know it's Turner, obviously, because he's the one whose confession we get, ultimately. But... It would have been nice to have had a bit more information on McCarthy because his son, like you said, he doesn't put up a fight. His son doesn't put up a fight, nor does he really try to get this girl that he loves, which just kind of makes him a little bit lame. But it would have been nice to see more about him and his perspective. We just didn't get it. Uh, anyway, three and a half, four, not a lot in our differences there. In terms of environment, I went for a four here. Um, mm. I, I liked I liked the pool. I liked the trip to Herefordshire. I liked the the kind of even the way the station and hotel of Ross was described. I liked that. Yeah, I, I the, found it the was uh, nice. town of Ross. Yeah, it was nice to be out of London. It was nice to see Holmes working in the forest and walking around and lying on the grass and kind of you know scoping out the environment and listening to the wind and and commenting on the weather. It, it was just cool the, to be the in barometric pressure. Yeah, mm, the barometric was, pressure was of cool. the. Yeah, I agree. I was four point five on the uh, on the locale. Oh, nice. That was my favorite. That was my favorite part of the whole story was the locale, like going out of the country, the description of Ross, the towns. Um, I guess because I'm a very, very much like into the into the geographical and the historical um, 
elements of you know of various stories like i kind of was with the with the bond novels i really like the, 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 the like the descriptions of environs and the world building that arthur conan doyle provides here mm-hmm. any sections really stand out for you uh, the town of Ross, uh, the hotel room that, that that he stayed in, the little inn that they were staying in, the sitting room, uh, the Boscombe pool was well described. You could really visualize it, you know, in in that respect. Um, even even like the, the from the you know from Paddington Station to the train to Herefordshire, you know, going into a you know crossing the Severn River and going into the Herefordshire into the Boscombe Valley, like that whole experience. Just I just kind of made it a really great travelogue, you know, and it kind of made the whole case worthwhile. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was nearly four o'clock when we at last, after passing through the beautiful Stroud Valley and over the broad, gleaming Severn, found ourselves at the pretty little country town of Ross. A lean, ferret-like man, furtive and sly-looking, was waiting for us upon the platform. This, of course, being Lestrade. Interesting way yes. that we get a good juxtaposition there between the you know, the pleasantry of the environment and then this little weaselly guy waiting for him on the platform. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, you know, marring the uh, pastoral <laughs> <Yeah>. landscape. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I went uh, I went four on the environs. You went four point five. Uh, secondary characters, just to finish this up, are supporting players. We had mm. Lestrade. We've got Alice Turner. We got James McCarthy. Although he's the innocent man, the, the you know. Alice, the, sorry, I mean, yeah, I I have her down as Sarah for some reason. My apologies. No. Um, they they don't do very much, and Lestrade's a bit uh, a bit cool here. But I went That's three. Why. I went three out of five. Passing, middling, nothing really special here. It's all about the backstory. And I'm sure that if I were to look back on a study in Scarlet, I would have seen a similar score from my supporting players there because it was basically, uh, yeah, I gave it a three then too. Yeah. Just, just because we have the exact same formula at work here. These guys don't matter very much. It's all about the backstory that reveals uh, the interest of the of the narrative. So I went three. Yeah, I was three as well. With the exception of Lestrade's presence and potential, you know, um, and also the biggest figures of Turner and McCarthy. Um, I found Neil McCarthy and Miss Turner, the supporting characters. They were kind of archetypal. So I was just, yeah, meh. So, okay, you were 18.5 for that story, uh, and I was a score of 17. So you did you did fancy it a little bit more than I did. I, I think the, uh, the, the uh, travelogue portion uh, put it over the top for me. All right, well, listen, pal, that's uh, the Boscombe Valley Mystery over, and that brings us to... Our first musical uh, interlude, if you will, a good opportunity to take a break if you want. For this story, I was thinking about how to match up. Like, you know, there's not a musical story, of course, and there's not a violin excerpt. There's nothing here that we get. And so I was thinking thematic. And then I was thinking, huh, huh, what would fit here? John Barry and his score for The Last Valley. That might make sense because for both John Turner and Charles McCarthy, this was The Last Valley they would ever see. So well done. I, I thought we could listen to the main titles of The Last Valley and then have opportunity to take a break before we move on. I will admit this, though, and I'll preface the music by saying this might be a little too lofty in some places, a little too dramatic for the story that ACD gave us. Yet any opportunity to share a good track of John Barry, I think, um, you know, it's worthwhile. So why don't we give a listen to uh, why don't we give a listen Word. to this?
Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is an excellent example of why film music is so important. Because if you've got a mediocre, middle-of-the-road story, film, screenplay, visual, experience, whatever, and then you've got a guy like John Barry who's going to whip you up some music, you've got a winning combination. And it turns whatever crap is on celluloid, or in this case on paper, into something a lot more dramatic and valuable. What do you think? Oh, yeah, fantastic. I kind of shed a little tear. We know that... I think uh, John Barry could have done a, a, a great score for a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, now that I think about it. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the story didn't have as much gravity as, as the uh, the music there did, so I, I did kind of preface it, but a great piece of music, yeah, always That was definitely year. more of like for a uh, Moriarty-centric story, more so than a uh, than like a little <laughs> case like this, right? Yeah, you're right. Sorry. We, well, haven't, got to more, we haven't got to Moriarty I yet. I know, man. We haven't even got there yet. But we are on to the four, the five, the four, the five orange pips. Um, this, in terms of publication information, the sign of five. The, yeah, yeah, the sign of five. This was published in November, uh, the following month in the Strand, eighteen ninety one. So this followed up the Boscombe Valley mystery, and this was rated as the seventh favorite story by the author himself of all the stories and novels he wrote this was number seven on his list uh, i don't know when acd sat down to do this little thing uh this rating maybe he was asked to do it for a publication uh i should actually have i should my research should have told me that but you know you write something down you move away from it um, <laughs> anyway so yeah this was his seventh favorite story out of the 12 that he recorded a rating for at the time oh good uh, we've got, <clears throat> thank you very much. We've got a couple of Goodreads reviews. Um, Alexandra Vales wrote, I like that this story is not wrapped up. Uh-huh. It's not wrapped up nice and tidy. It shows. You can't Sherlock- read your writing either. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. It shows, it shows that Sherlock Holmes is, uh, immortal and revenge. Huh? Still something him in the end. Yeah, I, I, I kind of... In the uh, end, okay. <laughs> I kind of butchered that one up. When you said anyway. like something in the I was, I was I thought you were going to say another word entirely. I'm like, what, where is this going? You're still in that CD opium den. I am. You're right. I must be. Um, oh, You're here it is. The here dragon. it is. Okay, I got it. I got it. I like that this story is not wrapped up nice and tidy. It shows that Sherlock Holmes is a mortal. Revenge still escapes him in the end. Um, another review from Goodreads. Uh, Sherlock Holmes takes on the KKK and wins, sort of. I wouldn't <laughs> say sort of. I wouldn't either. I just thought that was funny as a discussion point. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the five orange pips. Joshua, Dwight, Gordon Taylor, BFG. Uh, real quickly then, if that's possible, um, <laughs> ha, take us through a plot summary so we can get to lighten our pipes. All right, so uh, get that uh, tobacco ready. I will. We are treated to what amounts to an expeditionary montage of Watson and Sherlock's exploits up to the year 1887, when, amidst a dark and portentous storm falling over London, the duo at their back cave at 221B receive a last-minute case. Uh, ACD mounts Chekhov's gun on the wall with the blunt force trauma <laughs> matching the subtlety of Hemingway mounting a rhino's head in his living room. You see, we are reminded by this new client's naivety that Holmes has, in fact, lost four cases. Case in point, we got um, in my book here, it's page 100, the sixth paragraph. 
I dare, I guarantee you that's not going to help you whatsoever. Nope. But uh, I'll just go ahead and uh, just uh, quote from there. So, yeah, so this is what, uh, what what's our, our friend uh, Openshaw, who's yet to be introduced, uh, says to him. And yet I question, sir, whether in all your experience you have ever listened to a more mysterious and explicable chain of events than those which have happened in my family. And... Do you want me to sing here? Uh, to sing? Sing for your supper? or, or... No, just, oh, wait, sing, we... just sing to fill the awkward silence. Fill the awkward silences that you're going to edit out. No, I'm not going to edit anything. That's just cruel and unusual punishment. So is making me wait through this. <laughs> I don't know why I decided to write that down as a quote. For some reason, I wrote that down the other night, and I thought that that was it would add, uh, you know, uh, oh, incredible, <laughs> add an incredible uh, um, uh, view, uh, viewpoint to the story. But apparently, it's um, useless. So, uh, moving forward, <laughs> in the worst of digressions imaginable. Um, yeah. This is how John Openshaw announces himself. He's a young guy in his early 20s. His uncle Elias sought that American dream and moved to America, owning a plantation in Florida and getting himself tangled up in the Civil War. After the Confederacy's surrender, Openshaw grew disenchanted with the Reconstruction-era politics and returned to England, somewhat miserable. His nephew John helped relieve these old wounds until the day when he received a letter, and by helping him relieve him, he spent time with them, buddied up with them. You know, like, they had a good bonding, you know, but regardless, you know, Uncle Elias, you know, he stuck to his brandy and his drink, you know, that's that's what he did. And he kind of lived in isolation, you know, and just kind of allowed his, uh, John, his, his nephew, to come in every now and then to make him feel better, I suppose. But this all goes as, uh, as, as it usually does from day to day until the very day when um, Elias receives a letter with three with with uh, five orange pips as the only contents of the envelope. Uh, this scares the shit out of Uncle Elias. Um, meanwhile, young Openshaw is as confused as the reader as to why this would be so frightening. Three orange, five orange pips. Why is that a bad thing? I was like, oh, thank you for the free seed sample. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like Vessies. Isn't that Vessies? Yeah, exactly. Vessies, yeah. <laughs> Sending you your seeds in the mail. Yeah, exactly. It's Vessies. Okay, well, they're, they're nice. They're nice people. I guess Vessies uh, back then called themselves the KKK. That's all it is. Seems that probably way. some some Polish guy is probably you know three Polish brothers that run that run it or something, right? So, mm -hmm. so for another suspicious, um, so basically, this scares the shit out of Uncle Elias, as I mentioned, and this sense of foreboding kind of spreads like wildfire. It, it ends tragically with Elias being found dead in a nearby pool. Supposedly drowned after too many pints and too many battle wounds to his liver. Uh, his estate and his fortune passes to Openshaw Sr., his brother. This tenure does not last long, however, for another suspicious foreign letter arrives in the mail with five pips waiting for his, for Mr. Uh, young Openshaw's father. Alas, Openshaw Sr. is soon dead, supposedly cracking his skull during a fall on a construction site nearby and dying several days later. 
In the first incident, Openshaw hears his uncle Elias respond to the letter and, and the pips with the resonant, it's the KKK. But in the end, it's pretty, but the end, you know, again, is pretty frack and nigh for young Openshaw because he presents to Holmes the same letter addressed by the KKK with the five orange pips of death. So he himself gets the same letter, his uncle, his father, and then his, uh, and then he himself, finally. Um, so to, to complete the uh, chain of heredity or whatever vendetta the, the KKK has against the Openshaws. Now, the evil part of me is now thinking about sending five orange seeds to people who piss me off, but I don't think they'd get the reference. Um, well, they might. They might get the reference. This is, might, after yeah. all, one of the more popular Sherlock Holmes stories. True, true. But um, regardless, you know, Holmes sufficiently, he's intrigued by this whole thing. He's shook by the story in his own way, and he orders Openshaw to continue on as usual. The police, of course, are useless, and Holmes pretty much stresses that pretty loudly um, in this particular situation. Um, be much like Openshaw's fa father, who saw it all as some morbid practical joke. If, if this is a practical joke, and this is a troll of the highest order, you know? So mm -hmm. troll or no troll, Sherlock is on the case. We learn that, the, yes, the KKK of which of the pips originated is indeed the Ku Klux Klan, the white-hooded Illuminati-esque wankers. Uh, they have Openshaw in their sights, and all because dead Uncle Elias had evidence that could compromise their malevolent intentions back in the States. Not to mention taking a page from old Machiavelli and ruling through intimidation and fear by, you know, carrying out such, um, you know, like, how dare they trespass against them, you know, on the whole family, basically. Mm -hmm. Don't mess with these evil white men. That's pretty much the message. That is it. Um, yeah. But anyway, finish, finish up and then we'll, we'll talk in. Yes, yes. So Holmes spends the evening pondering the case with the help of, with the, help of evidence in the letters given uh, to him by Openshaw, but he gets the ultimate slap in the face, worse than dear Irene Adler, when the dynamic duo discovers in the paper that Openshaw was found dead, floating off the Waterloo Bridge. His pride shook, and possibly the emotion of anger and want of justice for Openshaw, it's kind of a gray area, uh, Holmes, Holmes with Watson following him along, he stepped up the deduction that the letters were sent via a ship in the port, a sailing ship to be precise, called, called the Lone Star. Some good old boys are in London town. But they skulk away, but Mother Nature has a sense of justice, too, and Lone Star never makes it back to America. Um, that's a simplistic rundown of the five orange pips, but I think the writing of the story itself, the atmosphere Arthur Conan Doyle presents with this tale, I think it, it kind of, it, 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 it actually, um, I'm kind of, I give a very simple explanation of the story, but you have to read it for yourself to understand why it's, such, why it's probably one of, one of his best stories. Yes, I, I would agree with you there on that point. I, I don't think explaining this story to someone, as I tried to do to Sarah there the other night, because um, you know, just telling her about what it was in, involving, I, I don't think I explained it with any great eloquence that would make her say, wow, that's that's a cool story. But it, it is a cool story. Five um, orange pips, wow. <laughs> well, yeah, but like, <clears throat> I find it interesting historically too, Like to put this story in its context. The KKK had... Well, I mean, it, it never properly went away. But at the time of writing, and in, in this story, it's it's referred to as like a disbanded organization that doesn't really organize or doesn't really exist anymore outside of some splinter cells. And I know that that expression is not used, but you know, it, yes. it, it isn't really alive. And of course, in the beginning of the 1900s, particularly the tens and the twenties, the KKK just has an enormous explosion where um, a 
a lot of Americans, like one in five, I believe, was a member, a card-carrying member of this organization. Yeah. And I know that has to do with geographics, or sorry, demographics and population and stuff. But um, it's it's cool to to read the Victorian, or at least Conan Doyle's, although he was very much an imperialist, there's a liberal uh, kind of freedom of rights feeling to what he's doing here. And I don't know if, if he's if he can get away with that because he's from a distance and he's looking at how uncivilized some have become. I, I don't, I don't really know because we know from the way he, he treated, uh, uh, the poor, um, Andaman Islanders. <laughs> he had, you know, he, he had his own, he had his own racist leanings, I guess, or cultural excuses, but there's something really politically interesting about this story. I guess that's what I'm dancing around that point. And, I like it. I think it's cool to read in that historical context. Um, and the story itself is quite interesting. Uh, the story of the Openshaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you want to... I mean, do, shall, we, shall we just light these pipes and, and dig into it? Yeah, let's light these pipes, uh, take a couple of puffs, and um, explore the uh, five orange pips. Okay, well, bear with me a moment now. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to light these pipes up. All right, how's that flavor for you, pal? Groovy. Groovy. We'll have to light them up when we get to that opium den shortly, too. That will result in an entirely different show. <laughs> and an entirely different groove. Uh, perpetrate, Bring the no, munchies. Principles. Uh, I gave it a five, actually. Um, this was, a to me, five? one of the... five? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. I found Watson is, is more than serviceable support for Holmes. I found he had presence and takes part in the investigation um, in many in many ways because uh, he was always just there all the time. And I, I, and I, he wasn't asking stupid questions all the time. He was following Holmes in a certain, in a certain way. Um, I found that Holmes is at the top of his game. Even when he is set up to fail, you know, Obershaw's death is clearly a great blow to him. But I think ACD allows us to see that it was a blow to his pride. But it was as well as a sense of, of his own justice of what is right and wrong. And it told us a lot about the man himself, you know, like he might be this calculating machine of deduction. But at the same time, you know, he has his own moral outrages and um, the, the injustice done and the incompetence of the police department and and this whole matter, like it just angers him. And in many ways, I kind of find like this storm that's manifesting around um, London at the time during this whole ordeal from like up until young Openshaw's death and then the the destruction of the uh, Lone Star out out in the Atlantic Ocean is almost like to me like yeah Holmes fails the case but for some reason he has some sort of connection to the elements that the revenge or the justice he manages somehow in his own way to the narrative to deliver justice to um, to the Openshaws via the destruction of the Lone Star. I'm, like, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I'm, I'll just echo your point when we get to the environs, but there's definitely something symbolic about how that's worked here. We've got a storm that is being discussed at the beginning of this story. We have a storm that takes out the KKK messengers at the end of the story. and the Captain Star. Calhoun and Co. 
yeah, it's it is this definitely something cool here and something you can you can sink your teeth into with the environment. Even though the the settings themselves are kind of just blasé, you know, within the action, like the the yes. bigger setting, the stage setting, you know, the dressing of the drama is is really quite cool in this story. Yes. And uh, yeah, and I just found that like this Holmes and Watson, I just found like they were pulled into this narrative and and uh, they did what they could to solve it and they tried everything they possibly could and they failed. But in the end, justice still still was still managed to be to to be de- to be delivered, whether mm-hmm. Holmes acknowledges it or not. I don't and, I don't uh, want to belabor the point too much, but I would like. You, yes. Can, can you could you say something else or maybe just reiterate what you were saying about the connection you 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 saw or you sensed between the elements and Holmes. I find that quite interesting. All right. Well, I guess I could summarize that. Um, a second here. Just in your own like your own reading of Holmes, you you found him elemental in a way, did you or what? Well, yeah, because the first time you see him, he's in his you know like the storm is going on. He is. He's, you know, and, and it's just just Holmes and Watson. Holmes, like now we like in this in this story, we don't have Watson going to Holmes from, you know, like he he doesn't leave Mary and go to Holmes. He's already there. He's in the. They're just hanging out. They've solved some cases already recently, and they're just hanging out. And I guess Watson's in the city, and they're spending a quiet evening together. Holmes, you know, is uh, just is waiting around for some, for some for a case to come. Uh, it's a quiet rain. It's it's a stormy night, you know, and and all London is feeling it. And you know, the wind is going against the glass, and it just creates this very kind of gloomy atmosphere that's kind of billowing around Holmes in this whole in this whole scenario, right up until the arrival of young Openshaw, and then we end it you know with the destruction of the um the, uh, of the uh lone star that's billowing storm following them out to the atlantic and and taking them down because if you recall the morning of uh openshaw's discovery of openshaw's death it's a clear quiet morning the storm is over right yeah okay. but that storm it reappears again uh to destroy the uh the uh the lone star at sea and to me it was almost just like the storm directed itself over to from holmes's I guess his the, the sense of will, I suppose, that he was emanating um, unconsciously in the narrative as a sort of a pathetic fallacy of nature reflecting the characters' mindsets or their goals and bringing that justice down upon the Lone Star, Captain Calhoun and his crew. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I followed you. I just found, I found it interesting reading. Um, so you went five. That's awesome. I went four. I really enjoyed them. I, I didn't necessarily see them at their expert best as you have. I don't know that. Um, I, I don't like for me. I felt that they were at their best in thus far, at least a scandal in Bohemia. I felt both of them were really fun, really uh, kind of mm. co-opting one another here. Um, I, I liked Holmes. I liked Watson. He had more agency, as you say, but I didn't find them at the top of their game, but I did find them very good. Holmes was interesting. And I did like the way his character um, felt the hit at the end of this. And that kind of spurred him on to get his own bit of revenge, even though it came through Mother Nature, as you already said. I went four, you went five. What about the investigation? Where did you go there? Just going back to the uh, the final final comment on the principles, though. One thing that really took it over, too, was the fact that, like, when, you know... you can say Holmes has pride, but at the same time, the moment when Openshaw said, you know, like you guys, you've solved all your cases and Holmes is like, uh, no, I have not. I there was actually four cases and, 
uh, one a woman or something like that, right? So it's just he's 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 an, he, you can say one thing about him. He might be a bit of a arrogant prick sometimes, but he's an honest person as well. So that also goes to his character. Okay. Yeah, he's he's capable of a, of 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 admitting his flaws. What I'm trying to say of of his mistakes, and that kind of speaks to you know a, a very positive look at his character. So I, I and I and I like that little uh, that addition that Arthur Conan Doyle put in there, and that kind of took it over the top for me again. All right, so you just think that rounded him off a bit, gave him a bit more depth. Yeah, shined shined him up a, li- a little bit. Okay, cool. Uh, the investigation. Uh, I thought the story was. Was was really cool. Like I like this. <clears throat> I like the way the the pips themselves. Something so mundane as to be, uh, you know, unnoticed. Really. I mean, how many of us spit pips out of our, our oranges or watermelons or whatever it is that we're <laughs> it, eating? You know, it becomes like a Hitchcockian MacGuffin. Hey. Yeah, it kind of does. Only it, it it communicates so much so much fear. And I don't think either of us would sit here and say that. Oh, this is like this great incredible narrative thing that Conan Doyle's come up with or that you know clandestine groups are use intimidation factors like this and this is the first time we ever saw it of course it's not but it still is cool in this story it works um i thought it was cool anyway uh it is not still for me though it, it, it's still as, as as much as i enjoyed it and as engaged as i was it isn't the best writing we've got um I went four out of five because I was constantly held by the story, but I was never, um, I was never really truly engrossed or moved by it. I, I didn't. I found Elias an interesting character. Um, John and Joseph, both of their deaths were kind of predictable. Like I knew as soon as Holmes revealed that. This letter came from the east side of London. I knew that John was going to die because the time, you know, was getting shorter and shorter between the postage date and the death of the figure who received the letter, you know? Yes. I, I wasn't really surprised or moved by John's death because um, he, he's just this unfortunate guy who, while I pity him and I sympathize with him, I don't really get to know very much about him. I... I you know, as a nephew of Elias, he has an interesting position, but as his own man, we don't really know much about him. He's just the client asking for help, right? And Yeah, he's the client. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when his death comes, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, but I'm more interested in how Holmes is going to pick up from there. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's because yes. I've gotten so used to characters getting, you know, shat on or dying or whatever, but... I don't know. I wasn't moved when when these characters died because I, I, I kind of felt like it was coming. Okay, I I, I see where you're coming from. I, I gave this a four point five. I found the investigation is is taken up by several parties, but Openshaw himself, you know, he does a lot of, of his own legwork in the narrative, and he's proactive in trying to solve his problems, which I really liked about his character. Um, he, he's not like you know like a, a young McCarthy, you know, in in the first story where he's well. The evidence is pretty much against me. What more can I do? You know, so, you know, like he's trying to get himself out of his situation and he's scared, but he's also kind of, you know, within reason, you know, he's he's also functioning admirably, even even in, I think, in Holmes's eyes. Um, right. Is that, that is that that's more a point for him, though, right? Not. The oh, man, it is. Not... 
Oh, oh, it is, but it, but it's still within the narrative, in my okay. in my opinion, and and it colors the narrative in that fashion in, in, uh-huh. in the positive sense. Um, you know, he does all his legwork, but it's too late, you know, to save him. That, that's tragic. Uh, this was more of a chilling cautionary tale with politicized elements on ACD's part in regards to his views of American politics in the Deep South. It's it's a, it's a thematically, you know, it's a story where it rests upon the laurels and its effect on this, upon these laurels of, of, as you were mentioning, the liberal politics of the time and and whatnot. Uh, despite you know the, the bit of hypocrisy he had in, in, in a sign of four, um, I think it's just effective in its sense of atmosphere and dread, and it's really well written that way. And it's different from from the previous stories that we've had be, be, be before. Um, I do think that what really prevented a, an extra 0.5 and maybe a full 425 in, in your sense is that this should I think this story would have worked better as a as, as a novel more so than a short story. I agree that there's certainly length of rope enough for for a longer story. Yeah, like having like Elias's background, you know, like in in the um, in in the uh, in the United States, you know, during this during the Civil War, I think that would have been some great fleshing out, or even have like more more fleshing out of the of the villains themselves, you know, like how the villains in the narrative doing something or or being suspected of uh, being suspected of something, but being but uh, being un, 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 unable to touch them or something, you know, just just something to give a little more razzle dazzle in, in, in that respect. Yeah, I, I feel like an extra thirty or forty pages would have made this a great a great story. But there's just and there's a, a shit ton of info. I would say even more. Like, I say twenty pages. I think could have made it a really really great story. Maybe uh, I I would still have wanted a, a little bit more because he he does make you sit through a lot of historical info dumping with the research into ships and all that type of stuff. And yes. you know, I I found that by not revealing the nature of what the papers included, like it was kind of cool but also kind of gimmicky. Like, I would have liked to have some taste as to what it was Elias did because he's a fascinating character. And I don't think that we should have... Well, I don't know. I would like to have seen a little bit more about why the threat... Like, why death came to these guys. Like, was Elias a member of the KKK? Did he steal documents while working for the Confederate Army? Did he have a change of heart and leave America because he didn't like being part? I mean, he's described as a grumpy pseudo-racist guy, but was the American approach to the Negro uh, too far right for him? You know, like, uh, what was his involvement with the KKK? I think another 50, 60 pages could have turned this into something a real, yes. a, a great narrative. I, I just can't go 4.5. I went 4 because I think that's a good score. But I just think there are way too many questions with Elias to and, and too much that Conan Doyle wants you to say, wow, look at this. Like, look at what I'm giving you. Isn't this big? Isn't this bold? Isn't this foreign? Isn't this isn't this mysterious and murderous and cool? Yeah. And OK, it is. But what you're giving me is the outline for a novel um, or at least a, a, a novella that you're trying to cram into 30 pages. And it's it's too big. Like. These we've said this before about Conan Doyle's writing. Like these foreign elements are the stories he wants to be telling. Like he should be. Oh, I'm saying should be. The guy owes absolutely nothing to posterity. But he, I would love to read his stories of these times. He obviously has the knowledge. He obviously has the enthusiasm. Look what he did with Utah and the deserts and the Mormons. Like he brought that to some incredibly colorful life. Yeah. I would love to see him do the same thing here for the South. Because we got all of the stuff, you know, we want to know about 
uh, Openshaw. I mean, I, I'm I'm basically segueing into character now. I hope you're okay with that. Um, no, I, I, that, that's okay because we're going into the perpetrators now. Yeah. So I, and yeah, th th this idea of Openshaw, <clears throat> I know that he's not a perpetrator, right? He was, he, but he's kind of like a shady character himself. Um, but emigrating to America, working on the plantation in Florida, then going to work for Stonewall Jackson in the Confederate Army, rising mm -hmm. to the rank of colonel. When General Lee surrendered, Elias, Elias went back to planting for a short time. Then he sold up, took his money back to England. He bought an estate for a real quiet retirement. Not dissimilar, I have to say, to the story he wrote a month earlier with the Australian earning money, leaving, trying to retire mm -hmm. a quiet life in London like or in England. you got a similar thing going on here. And so there is a bit of mimicry happening. I do yeah. think we have to acknowledge that. But, um, it, you know, in, in terms of in terms of the... I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I don't want to talk too much about Elias because he's more a supporting figure. But yeah, I mean, I'm just underlining the point that I think the groundwork for an incredible story has been written here. I just don't think we get that story in the 30 pages he's trying to cram into the strand. Yeah, you you present a very good case, sir. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on, on many points. And I'm even kind of debating, you know, going from 4.5 to 5 on some parts. But I'm going to stay with my scores. Just I think I've, I've justified them enough to stay that way. But you present a really good argument, my friend. Well, I, I went down to four, so you know I'm sticking to my four. In terms of perpetrator, um, I'm mysterious going, is mysterious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like I like the KKK. I I do find in the story that they've got. It, it's cool that I don't know the nature of the grudge, but at the same time, not knowing the nature of the grudge makes it hard for me to really take their death sentences like. I mean, I, I kept and I wrote this note. In the they're almost like cartoon. They're almost like cartoon villains that way, you know. In that, yeah, in they are. And I'm wondering, how is a Victorian reader, act like not accessing, but how are they viewing this? Like, do they just read this as sort of an interesting mystery intrigue story, or like the KKK don't reveal why they're killing off the Openshaws? They just want these documents. What what the nature of the documents are that Elias burnt, we'll never know. Yes. Um, there's some correspondence. We know at least that much. But what like how does a what do you think the Victorian reader is is meant to feel about this narrative and the case? I think I, I just mentioned like I just think it's just a fear of like of like repressive governments. And and, and whatnot and, and racism and it was promoting very liberal ideas you got to remember too in victorian england even though like there was a whole bunch of like colonialism going on of course and there was a lot of people in british society who were very you know abolitionists you know mm -hmm. they were yeah. they were supportive of like you know other races and, and having all like these these charity groups and stuff like that so that was an important part of a victorian culture we saw that in dickens for example there was a yeah. lot of ideas of like saving the children of Africa, save that mm -hmm. children of Africa, that sort of stuff. Well, you know, while, while your whole family lives in poverty, that's a reference to Bleak House. But anyway, um, do you, do you then, do you then see that the Joseph, the father of John and the brother of Elias, when he, when he takes over the farm after Elias's death um, or the estate, do you see him as the everyman, the, the level-headed trusted in the and he uses this expression the civilized land of england and he doubts all this tomfoolery that you know his that his brother was terrified and, and paranoid about do you see yes. him, do you see him then as being the uh the kind of well the self-righteous 
English reader who was above this? I think so. You can compare him to uh, to the to the to the police inspectors that he's that uh, Openshaw speaks to. You know, who are just who smiled at him. You know, while he talked about this. You know, it's just one big big troll, one big practical joke, and not, not to be taken seriously at all, or to embarrass mm-hmm. yourself with and stuff, and yeah. and not realizing you know the menace that these people represented. You know. But we never get a really sense of what that menace really is or why they're doing what they're doing. We don't really get a nefarious means other than what we personally know about the KKK. White hoods and burning crosses and Negroes being hanged from trees and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's uh, – the KKK is just such a loaded – element in the story that it it brings that baggage over with it automatically but at the same time it's just not fleshed out in the narrative enough to provide the proper pathos i guess yeah but could it be this is why i'm wondering if it was a if it was a suitable target for conan doyle to choose given his time because like the mormon like the like the uh brigham young and the and the mormons well uh, i think the avenging angels more was known about mormon society and mormon religion uh at the time and possibly Mormon defection. I think less is known about the KKK here and I can't help but feel that there's kind of a flash in the pan element here that Conan Doyle is wanting to write about something that he himself doesn't fully understand. Like he he has the know-how about or he has the know-how involving this organization but I don't think he knows as much about its secret workings as he would like to I don't know, like I don't know. I just feel like maybe this is a guy who's wanting to write about something he's really interested in but he's denied access to that interest like like if you or I were to write a short story or a novel about about um the I don't know what not the well a secret society you know and and, and we don't we, we don't know anything about them there is definitely a fascination that Arthur Conan Doyle had with American society and American like the civil war and American politics and whatnot. Uh, he was definitely very interested in that. There's this, I, there's the other shorts, the other a novella or a novel, I guess of, of the Sherlock Holmes novels that I have read um, is the Valley of fear. And we'll explore more about his obsession with America, with, with, with America and that. I guess it's also worth noting that at this time, uh, following that, uh, f- following that golden evening, of 1890 when he was commissioned by the American publisher. I mean, he's writing for an American audience and he's quite vigilant of that. So it's it's not impossible yes. to to see where some of this is coming from, you know? True, true. And I wonder if if, if, if the Five Pips is more considered popular, you know, on an American viewpoint than it is on a Brit, on a Victorian British uh, viewpoint. Hmm, interesting point. Anyway, because this faceless, nameless organization and their methods of attack is, um, you know, it's well, lugubrious and it's uh, it, it's quite sinister and 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 also quite spectral. I don't feel like there's a lot we can hold on to. I mean, it's frightening and it's interesting for that purpose, but um, I. I, 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 I kind of like wanted, I don't know, like a, like a burning cross or some white guy, some, some guys in white hoods or something, you know? <laughs> uh, I didn't necessarily want that. I just wanted an, an explanation of what was in these papers, and, and I never got it. So I was interested and engaged with the perpetrator, paper perpetrators, uh, but I went 3.5. I, I didn't just couldn't go higher for this one. Um, I just felt like I was neglected too much. I feel that way too. I, 3.5, I think the, the, the antagonist could have been uh, explored a lot more. Um, 
one thing I want to point out too is that it's also very, very politicized um, in a sense too. Is, and so he kind of takes away from it. And this is something that I knew myself, but I went and double checked it. The name of the captain of the Lone Star, uh, John Calhoun, is a very is a loaded name because before this civil war started, one of the southern politicians um, who was very much against um, the you know uh, African Americans getting the vote, uh, the abolition of slavery, he believed in in, in the peace of the Union and and that 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 that, that you know that that the uh, the non-abolitionist states versus the slave states, they needed to accept the fact that the slave states, you know, this was their whole culture and their economy. And Calhoun was the biggest proponent of that. And he was very anti-war. Um, he, he, was, he was not a hawk at all when it came near near the end. And it's very interesting that the name John Calhoun is used as in the opposite sense where he wasn't a man of war or whatever, but he was also one of the early proponents of, you know, of getting this dialogue going in the American Congress that maybe the state should secede in, in this respect, you know, because of the other, how they're being treated by the North. See, that's interesting. I, and now, Conan, Conan Doyle was too clever. He was too clever a guy not to be aware of these of these names and these figures. And so he's littering his, his story with these Hansel and Gretel-like crumbs, you know, for people like ourselves, I guess, in the future who can pick up on this stuff and who know about it. But there's yeah. no way that the large proportion of his readers would have would have been picking up on this. No, would they? the Americans no, I, maybe, maybe the Americans. The Americans. That's again, and this is your point: is that this story was definitely more in, geared at an American audience. Like, I don't think a lot of British people are going to know who who John Calhoun was. You know, like they 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 definitely would have known you know Lincoln and, and names like that and Lee and Stonewall Jackson most likely right that's a good but, point yeah just but, as but just like, as not many Americans would know so not many British would know these guys not many Americans would know the Australian outback or wagon men and that kind of stuff yeah so I maybe like with each story just he just explores different avenues of of, of different writers he speaks to so you're, so you're going to have like american readers who are going to dislike one story like the boscombe valley mystery but really dig you know you know the, yeah. the five orange pips because of the Ku Klux clan illusion you know so well this is that, cool uh, this is really cool because we're getting unlike with ian fleming in our series on that he was writing the same types of stories for himself and for you know a small uh, concentrated readership largely in the west here we've got like here we've got a man who's perhaps m- far more aware of his audience and working for his audience in a different way. I, I think that kind of speaks to him also being a Scots as well, in, mm-hmm. in, in a sense too, right? Detached Understanding the, the main... diaspora a little more, yeah. And and the, and the connection of Scotland to America as well, right? Cool. This will, this will be fun to trace as we, as we keep going through this. Um, okay, well, that's us both 3.5 there. What about the environment, Josh? I went 4.5 here because I love the way Although there's not a lot of interior settings we get that are nicely described, like the hotel or like the town of Ross that we saw in the previous story, we do get this wonderful evocation of the elements. And it is standout so far. We haven't really received anything like this apart from... I never considered that as part of the the environments, but you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, that's that's how I read it. Yeah, I kind of put that, the element, like the nature part of it into the writing under the investigation part of the, the story presentation. But... I kind of now I'm going to move my I think I'm going to move my grade up a little bit now to consider that, you know, uh, nature itself in the storm. And I think that that will prop up my score a little bit bit on the environs because 
other than like the apartment, it's mm-hmm. you know like the Don't deep south doesn't yeah. get any doesn't get the Utah Valley treatment like nope. it did in this in, in a study in Scarlet. It was pretty just Holmes never left his apartment the entire story. That's right, and I think that's kind of cool. Like you know he yeah. he, he figures this one out, and we get him leaving kind of at the end when he goes to look at the ship's registries and all of that. But I'll just read a little bit here. We haven't we haven't read a quote in a bit, so. This is uh, an example of that evocation of scenery at the beginning. Um, It was in the latter days of September, and the equinoctial gales had set in with their exceptional violence. All day the wind had screamed, and the rain had beaten against the windows, so that even here in the heart of great handmade London, we were forced to raise our minds for the instant from the routine of life, and to recognize the presence of those great elemental forces which shriek at mankind through the bars of civilization, like untamed beasts in a cage. As evening drew in, the storm grew louder and louder, and the wind cried and sobbed like a child in the chimney. Sherlock Holmes sat moodily at one side of the fireplace, cross-indexing his records of crime, whilst I, at the other, was deep in one of the Clark Russell's fine tea stories, fine sea stories, until the howl of the gale from without seemed to blend within the text, and the splash of the rain to lengthen out into the long swash of the sea waves. My wife was on a visit to her aunts, and for a few days I was a dweller once more in my old quarters at Baker Street. Like... There's so much foreshadowing in there, not just for plot, but for environmental description, too. I, I think that's really, really cool. The fact that he's reading a story that is about, you know, a sea adventure, and that comes full circle. Some readers would find this heavy-handed. I don't find it heavy-handed. I find it really nice set decoration, and I, I appreciate the way the environment is used symbolically as a narrative point in the investigation. Uh, but I, I really like the way it... It heightens, and I don't know if you can understand what I'm going to say here, but because we've got such, you know, so much going on outside, and that is so nicely rendered, we imagine mm-hmm. the warmth of the fire. We can feel and sense the interior, even though it's not brought to our life. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like the illusion of shelter and 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 uh, and, and, and protection and safety. You know, like sanctuary in many ways. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to look at it. Anyway, I, I because think because because burning but... because because burning the papers. Um, did not protect the open shots at all. No, they didn't. So, you're right. You're quite right. Um, <clears throat> so fire can be cold sometimes. Is that what you're you're trying to get at? That, and I think the sense too is like as I as I was mentioning about how does the storm uh, that appears over London is this uh, uh, is this kind of like a symbolic representation of the evil of the Ku Klux Klan that has arrived there to do their evil upon the open shots. Yeah, you know, cool. the more see the more well, you talk about it, the but, more the more we dissect it, the the more levels there are to it, and I think it's a really cool story that way. Yeah, it's definitely a uh, onion in that respect. Anyway, I I went four and a half. Um, I I really liked it. I think it's still maybe a little too generous, but it 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 was for me environmental. You know, it was the setting, it was how the story or where the story takes place in the hmm. environment of it. So I went four to five, a uh, four point five. Oh wow! Well, I jumped from two point five to three point five. Now that I put in the na- into the in- into the uh, nature elements of it, okay. so I, I think I'm gonna probably I'm gonna st- I'm gonna actually um, st- just uh, stick on an even four as a whole. I think on the environs, right? And what about the secondary players? I went for four out of five here. I uh, I like them. You know, I, I like John's story of the other guys. I found John's father Joseph as the everyman believed in the civilized land and you know he wasn't the least bit superstitious um until he died in a chalk pit uh yeah. i found elias's story pit. yeah sorry not, not, not a construction site a chalk pit that's right uh, uh john himself just an unfortunate victim the last in his line 
um, sad, but wasn't really too involved with him. But I found that they had so much potential. And I think maybe it's the potential here of these characters that speaks to a bigger stage that made me go 4 instead of 3.5. But, you know, keeping with the spirit of how I feel about the story as a whole, aesthetically, and in terms of its entertainment value, I'm going to keep it at a 4, even though my better judgment's telling me to go down. I'm I'm, I'm sticking with my 4. I'm actually at 3.5. I liked Open Shaw's A Victim with Agency, um, all the Open Shaw's. Um, they were compelling and it provided, you know, as I said, pathos and it gave a momentum to the story. Um, Elias was intriguing and the narrative could have expanded upon him and benefit to the environs of the Deep South, I think. Um, the, villains are, the villains are shady boogeymen. I mentioned the John Calhoun reference, mm-hmm, so it's very mm-hmm. politicized. Um, evil, you know, they're evil racist KKK, you know, they're not really expanded on at all. And uh, as a, so I, I put all the supporting, support, supporting players under that umbrella. In, 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 that, in that sense. So 2.5, I'm staying with that. All right. Well, that brings us to a total then of 20.5 for you on that story. So you really like that one. And I was at 19. I also really liked that one, just perhaps uh, a little bit less than you did on the whole. Mm-hmm. And now we are moving on to our third story in a moment. But before we do that, uh, our second... Musical interlude. Our second musical feature. That's right. Now, in thinking about the five orange pips, I went a little bit... A little less bombastic, a little more textual. We have, of course, at the end here, Holmes and his feeling of, you know, losing out. I don't know about losing out. Certainly, he's just working on a case. But the fact that he loses a client to to something that he wanted to have figured out, I'm sure that would have hit him in a real powerful way. And so what what I'm going to play here is a... And I'm not going to get the pronunciation of this right. I never do. But it's Pablo de, Sar- uh, de Sarsat. I, I, I got him okay. And he's a Spanish uh, violinist and composer of many yawns ago. And uh, this is the Ziegenwersen, okay, uh, for violin and orchestra. This is a movement from his Opus 20. It's a slow movement, and if you listen to the violin and you think about Holmes and his violin, I think over the next three, three and a half minutes, you'll get a real feel for uh, the emotional impact that losing uh, John Openshaw and maybe not getting the best of the KKK, having to let Mother Nature take the Lone Star down, um, must have had on Holmes. So hope you enjoy.
there you go. I don't know if it if it seemed the same to you, but certainly when I was listening to that and trying to pick out a piece of music that I found fitting, then that that stood out for its uh, its kind of sense of uh, a sadness, a loss, this feeling Dad of Sherlock in, in, <laughs> incompletion. Yeah, you know, like just you know, just being kicked in the kicked in the gut, not quite understanding why or how to relieve the pain. It, it's all there in that. And by the way, I should say that's Yaska Heifetz playing uh, violin. He's one of the greats, man. If if you want to, you, you ever looking to listen to some great, great music? Um, he did all kinds of stuff, Yaska Heifetz. It wasn't just those types of orchestral pieces, but solo hmm. violin, he's phenomenal talent. Uh, yeah, let's move on to The Man with the Twisted Lip. We got about 30 minutes to wrap this baby up. Uh, I think we can do it. Let's be yeah. economic. Let's be fulsome. And let's get into a plot summary, please. So we open with a situation going down with Watson. Uh, uh, with Watson. So we got Kate Whitney. She's the wife of uh, Watson's friend um, and colleague, Isa Whitney, uh, has arrived at Watson's doorstep. Um, Isa has been swallowed by some London opium den called the Bar of Gold, which is in the farthest east of the city. Farthest east, quote unquote. Yes, we get it. ACD colonialism. Yeah, we get more it. than implied racism. There, we got gotcha. you. Well, yes and uh, no. I mean, it, it was it. Most of the opium coming into London at this time was coming from the east. It was coming from India, right? So, yes. I, don't, I don't know that it's as much racism as it is uh, fact. But anyway, sorry. Maybe kind of a bit. Uh, not a very subtle implication, then perhaps. Oh anyway. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, Whitney has been chasing the dragon on and off again since his frost days and is pretty much a slave to his questionable benefits. Watson, or a man of action, takes, an, takes a hansom down to Upper Swandham Lane and this place of ill repute and manages to find Isa quite quickly. Isa is too drugged up to protest and being taken away, um, but Watson, he finds a compelling reason to hang around because Holmes, to his not utter surprise whatsoever, is in disguise as an old opium junkie uh, whilst gleaning information from Stoner Talk um, <laughs> on the whereabouts of where Neville St. Clair might have disappeared to. Um, not blowing Holmes's cover, Watson gets Isa on a handsome back to suburbia, and, and once the dynamic duo has a few blocks on the gold bar, Holmes removes his disguise. Uh, he's on a case, of course, for Mrs. Uh, St. Clair needs to find her hardworking, honest, non-opium-addicted husband. And yet, this is where she last saw him, in the upper window of the gold bar, in various <laughs> suspicious circumstances. Yeah, half naked. Yeah, half naked, yeah, without his collar or, what, or whatever. So, And then all of a sudden disappears. Um, Holmes, Holmes is happy to assist her on this new case. And he takes, he takes in with us, you know, us, the reader, all the juicy details of Mrs. St. Clair's encounter with her husband. Uh, the Lasker proprietor and the ugly cripple, Hugh Boone. Uh, this Boone guy was arrested by the police and taken away, as his place of lodging at the gold bar is the room of the window where Mrs. St. Clair last saw her husband. Certain by the evidence of Mr. St. Clair's, you know, his coat full of coins that was found and the absence of a body just outside the window where the tide comes comes in all the time, which is a very easy way to get rid of a body, uh, Holmes suspects that the last Karen Boone are responsible for Neville St. Clair's disappearance. He and Watson return to Lee, where Mrs. St. Clair asked him point blank if she thinks Neville is dead or alive. Holmes gives her just the facts. No, I do not, ma'am. He thinks he's a, she, there's, doesn't look for much hope in that regard. But there's also no evidence of it either. Still, here comes the watershed moment. Mrs. St. Clair discloses she has just received a letter from her husband informing that he is alive. 
The letter itself is suspicious, as the writing indicates that he sent it the use of his signet ring, and it indicates that he's alive, right, because he's using the signet ring. But mulling it over, you know, the whole case, at and the fact that it's possible the letter uh, was also written by someone else um, adds more to that suspicion. So, you know, just going over and staying um, over, the, over the case, they spend the night at Mrs. St. Clair's through the lodging she provides. And, you know, early morning, you know, Holmes pontificates this uh, on uh, one of his three pipe problems. But he wakes Watson to crack a dawn and drags his number two all the way to the jail where, with a sponge, obviously taken in a moment of serendipity, he wipes it across Hugh Boone's face, revealing under much putty and makeup, Neville St. Clair. So get this. The job that this guy has been working steadily at for years, going into the city without, the, without any question from his wife or friends, why does your wife need to know where you work as long as, you, as you're the breadwinner, right, yeah. uh, is begging. You know, he's like uh, like he's fracking begging. He has he's made a tidy fortune of it. He's so and, and his costume is so ugly and terrible because of how t- that's how that's how effective it is and how he's making a huge fortune uh, from all this. It turns out he was an accomplished actor of some means who fell into debt. And he used beggary and his craft to pay it off. And to make an arrangement with Alaska, our owner of the gold bar, he used his lodging to maintain his beggar appearance and then moved about the city as refined gentlemen during the day. You know, like the gentleman from Lee going back to his crummy lodgings at the gold bar and becoming a beggar and making all this money more than the average Joe. Uh, it was just one of those things, you know, where he just got into a groove, I guess, and he making hordes of money and and then and the move about the city as a, as a gentleman. You know, it's because of his experience more so uh, that allowed him to, as an actor that allowed him to uh, to to, uh, to, to, to to do this. Actor so, and you journalist, know, he was both. Journal and journalist, yes, of course, because he could write his articles in that fashion too. Because he was reporting um, on on you know on the, st- the state, state of, of homelessness, of poverty yeah. in these areas, right? On the state of homelessness, yeah, very kind of Dickensian uh, uh, influence there. You know, I guess uh, the uh, the upper class l- looking after the common man kind of patronage. You know, uh, he gets off, you know, with a wrap of his knuckles only. You know, and promises to end his career of beggary. But um, basically, the man with the twisted lip uh, was solved by Deus Ex Sponge Machina. <laughs> Yeah. Or sorry, I'll, 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 I'll present. I'll, I'll, I'm reading that off my notes here, but um, what I meant to say was uh, Deus ex sponge machina. I just had to pronounce the Latin correctly there, for those who are more discerning about how Latin is pronounced. So yeah, Deus ex sponge machina. What do you think of that? Did you, did you think that was a? Um, do you think that happens every now and every? Like, how did you find that as a solution to the case, just as a, uh, as a starting point? Well, I found it interesting. Um, I'll say more about that when I get to the uh, the investigation. I've actually got yeah. I've, I've actually got a really nice annotated edition of uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, and I'm, I'm going to read a couple of points that uh, the uh, the editor wrote wrote on them because I found them quite interesting. <laughs> Can I just say a few words to start here about about this? Um, I did yeah, some, I did yeah. some research into this, not just opium. I wanted to do that little bit of research into opium and how it was, you know, quite prevalent at the time of writing. But I'll start with that. I'll, I'll get that kind of stuff out first. I mean, th- th- these opium dens that um, <clears throat> these opium dens that this guy uh, Whitney goes to, and then Holmes finds or Watson finds Holmes in, and all this type. These places were associated with crime even then but they were not houses of criminality they were just places maybe where crime took place but they they weren't places to go necessarily and get involved in crime it's just because 
opium was kind of uh, a dangerous drug, it was it was seen as, as kind of seedy, but everybody or a lot of people were, were into it. I'm going to yes. say like, okay, basically I'm, I'm trying to cram a lot of information into, um, into a, a small amount of time, but that's the first point I want to get out there about these opium dens. They did exist. They were very real places. They weren't all full of crime, but uh, a lot of crime happened around them, you know? So imagine like, yes. a, imagine like a, a smoky little pool hall, you know, some place where you would expect a bit of, a bit of badness to be happening or I don't know, like back alleys that alleys aren't illegal, you know, bars aren't illegal, but you're more likely to find someone doing something illegal there. Right. Yes. Um, this story is ridiculous, right? I think we, we appreciate that, <laughs> but it isn't, without, it isn't without precedent. Okay. I want to, I want to read something to you. Um, this, this idea of fake uh, lucrative begging, it, 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 it does exist. And there's been <laughs> recent stories in the, in the press about it. Here's the first one. Are you familiar with uh, the shaky bag lady of Toronto? No, I'm not familiar with hey. the shaky bag lady. Let Please me, let acquaint me, let me, me read with this. the shaky bag lady of Toronto. Let me, let me talk to you about the shaky bag lady of Toronto. This was written by Mike Strobel in the Toronto Sun. She wears a shabby red jacket. Her hair is gray and scraggly under a faded purple kerchief. A garbage bag covers her legs. People throw money on it. Lots of people. Sometimes they line up. She got here about 11, says Constable Paul Stone, on traffic duty at a construction site. She started shaking as soon as she sat down. She's just raking it in now. At Harvey's across the street, photographer Alex Urosevich and I do some figuring. 30 people in 15 minutes, Alex counts. 50 in the time it takes me to eat a veggie burger and sip a coffee. So... Being very conservative, let's say 50 kind strangers an hour, a toonie or loony each, five hours a day, five days a week, that's $2,500 a week. Net. I mean, yeah. what's the overhead? How much do blue thermal pants and a garbage bag cost? Several people in the area have told me she usually <laughs> has two burly men keeping watch over her. Some think they're her sons. If they're around, I can't spot them in the throngs. Please help me. I'm sick and poor. I'll pray for you, says the cardboard sign around her neck. I toss in a, a toonie. She gives me a toothless grin and croaks. The shaking is remarkable. How could you say no? Shopkeepers and security staff say she's haunted Bloor between Young and Bay for at least a year. I was struck by her wretched appearance, says Agnes McKenna, 74, who lives nearby. I wondered, how could anybody be so heartless as to dump her on the street? A couple of weeks ago, and so the story c continues, and then we learn, and we learn every day this woman gets up, goes into a Chevy Lumina, and drives away. <laughs> so she's fucking cleaning it up, right? This was this was about ten years ago. I don't even know if she's still around anymore. But I found some more recent ones. There's a, a beggar uh, in Putney, a part of London, currently today. Uh, this was reported in the Daily Mail, who makes approximately three hundred pounds per day from begging, and that's more than ninety nine percent of the UK population earn. Okay, and New York City Jeez. has got a Grand Central Terminal panhandler who earns about $200 an hour. I mean, there is precedent and lucrative precedent for doing this type of begging. And so while the story is ridiculous, I found it ridiculous on other levels, like the way the women are treated in this story. Like, holy shit. Like, no woman is respected in this story. The first guy's wife, no. right, Whit Whitney, his, his wife shows up asking for help because her husband's fucked off to an opium den. And yes, he does He does this often, but usually he's back within 24 hours, and now he's just done a runner. And then then you got then you got Watson going to help his wife's friend, but then he fucks off on his wife 
to go hang out with Holmes for a few days. And Holmes says, oh, you better send her a postcard. And so he writes her some postcard. And then we got then we got Sinclair, who is Boone, and, and Mrs. Sinclair, who doesn't know that her husband is actually out begging on the streets. She thinks he's going to work in some respectable part of London. All like the, as, as, all as the a journalist, women, yeah. All the women here in this story get shafted massively. And for that reason, I want to play, and I want to do it right now to set this up, I want to play a song for the women in this story because they get shafted massively. So, is it Lemonade? Is it Lemonade? No, it's not Lemonade. It's better than that. It's more deserving than that. It is okay. the heartbreakingly honest and painful Stand By Your Man by Tommy Wynette. Oh, boy. Tommy nice. Wynette. think either of the men in this story deserve two warm arms to cling to every single one of these men treats their women like crap i think holmes down ended up pretty okay this is the guy who's on the spectrum who's basically uh shouldn't you send her a letter or something or let her know well i got yeah like, you're right but i got something to say about that too because i think i read this story like i think holmes is having an affair with this mr st Clair. And here's why I think that, okay? Like, okay, call, call me crazy, call me crazy, all right? He refers to her as dearest, starting off, okay? He calls her dearest, and that's strange. When Watson meets her, or Watson meets him in the opium den, he's already established himself up there in her property. When they go out, she shows up at the door to greet him in this, like, negligee thing that is as, cl <laughs> it's as close to Conan Doyle's 
um, Bond girl description as we're going to get. She's obviously sexualized. There's something that I, I think there's totally scope for this, okay? Like in a story where all the men treat their wives like crap, here we've got, I was about to call him Bond, here we've got Holmes who's who's kind of macking on this this wife. And I think I think there's something going on here, man. I'm just asking you, okay, as the guy who rereads these stories, see if you can spot these things. Maybe I'm nuts, but I, I think there's something there. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I guess. I guess he got a little bit frustrated after Irene, the whole Irene Adler scenario, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I, I didn't finish all my stuff about opium. I'm gonna finish up, and then I'm gonna let you talk for a bit, and then we're going to uh, just really quickly do our uh, our pipes on this one. This yeah. is a, this is a first example, or one of the earliest examples of a Playfair mystery. I didn't know what this was until I uh, did some reading on it. You, are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Uh, well, please elaborate. Uh, a Playfair mystery is a story where all of the clues are known to the reader at the same time as a detective. So we learn, as Holmes does, what's going on, you know? Um, we, we get the story told to us while they're on their carriage on the way up to, uh, to talk to Miss Sinclair. Watson learns and we learn what's been going on, but extra information is kind of told to us at that same point. I found that really interesting because we're kind of moving... He's not so far ahead of us in this one. Do you know what I mean? Um, it, in the United States, this was not called The Man with the Twisted Lip. It was called The Strange Tale of a Beggar. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. Uh, the opium information. I found this fascinating that in 1888, which, remember, is only two and a half, three years before the publication of this story. So let's say three, just to be safe. Um, <clears throat> the Encyclopedia Britannica softened the notion that opium was dangerous and compared this to a moderate tobacco or alcohol drug of consumption. And there's a little more information that I found within the pages of my book here that I think warrant a bit of sharing. Uh, I'll just read it out because it's interesting. I think it's interesting. To, to uh, Trudeau, maybe he'll, 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 he'll legalize it. <laughs> he legalizes everything. Um, well, Okay, maybe I won't. No, maybe I won't read that stuff out because that talks about kind of where opium came from in the East and then the opium wars and how Britain got Hong Kong. Like, we probably don't have time to talk about that. But here's what I will say. Fast forward 25 years, the 1910 edition of the same Encyclopedia Britannica um, still carried instructions for the use of opium. And it still wasn't really understood as, you know, the, 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 the destructive addictive drug that it was and i think the fact that publications at in arthur conan doyle's time were kind of downplaying the real risks or not aware of its real risks it says something of its popularity but also of its cultural appropriateness and it is of course a drug that is kind of i won't say celebrated but mythologized through the use of uh poetry or sorry through through some poetical figures and musicians and writers and stuff like that and so Conan Doyle, I think, is is jumping on a popular bandwagon and writing about opium here, and or at least setting a story in it. Um, but it doesn't really function. It it is a MacGuffin as well, you know. In the story, yes. you, you think that you're being set up for some something that's really important to this drug and and you know it, its role in in London's underground or whatever. But we don't get any of that. It's really just a setting piece. Um, yes. But I thought it was interesting because a lot of writers are playing with opium uh, in their stories and a lot of them are using it uh, as, 
you know, I guess individuals and growing addicted to it. Um, there was another thing that I thought was interesting, which I would share with you. Uh, this was actually like I've got a, uh, an editor's copy of this and the actual story of the man with a twisted lip isn't what uh, you have read. It's uh, it's what I've got. And there's a scene that when in the opium den, this is um, this is what the characters hear. A stately pleasure dome decree Where Alf the sacred river ran Through caverns measureless to man Down to a sunless sea So twice five miles of fertile ground With walls and towers were girdled round You know what that is, of course, don't you? That Richard Burton? That's Richard Burton reading Kubla Khan by Coleridge, which of course is the great opium, yeah. the great opium story uh, poem, and that is uh, completely untrue. There is no different addition to the story, but I just thought it would be funny if we could imagine Holmes sitting there smoking his pipe, Watson stumbling upon him, and some uh, <laughs> high office tree jackass up reciting Coleridge at the front of the the house. I thought that would be funny. I wouldn't be surprised because that's where all the romantic poet fans probably hang out anyways. They did, yeah. Anyway, The Man with the Twisted Lip. Uh, whew, I, I don't know how you want to how you want to do this. Uh, I just threw all kinds of information at you. Some of it worked. Some of it stuck. Some of it just fell like dripping shit to the floor. But what do you think? No, I think you may – I think, you know, like your, your points were, you know, they fit the context of the story and of the, of the world you present and um, – I still don't know what to think about your whole Holmes being a Mac Mac Daddy theory, but uh, I like it. Well, I I just see more of it here than uh, than anywhere else. Oh, I see. Was that with your uh, wife being like a family lawyer kind of thing, being able to point that out? Do you think that's what might be in there? Has nothing to do with that. I, I mean, come on, man, think about it. Why? Yeah. Does, why? Why? If we're not meant to think of this as a possibility, does? Holmes show up at this place and is greeted by this girl in a negligee. Why does he refer to her as dearest? Like, why? What's going on? <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't use those types of emotive greetings to anybody. Oh, he hasn't yet to anybody. I think you should kind of table this and just examine Holmes' reaction with women. Like, consider back, you know, the Irene Adler situation, and then this, and then Mrs. Sinclair. And just see if this, you see, if, just see if you can pick up a pattern, perhaps that maybe Doyle is alluding to, because we kind of think, you know, that Watson is Arthur Conan Doyle's surrogate in the narrative, but maybe it's actually Holmes, because we know that ACD was a notorious womanizer. So mm. I'm curious to see where this is going. Well, I, I don't doubt that ACD is getting a bit of a hard on writing up this young blonde wife. Like, you know, there's something in that, and he's being as risque as he probably can be within the confines of his Sherlock Holmes formulaic stories, but. I don't know. I just think maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. I'm being flippant ultimately, but I I, I read it. <laughs> I, I read something into it. So uh, let's let's do our pipes, okay? Uh, in the spirit of brevity, I'm I'm quite happy to steamroll through mine and let you because I've spoken quite a bit. So I'm I'm happy to steamroll through my scores and let you then say a, a little bit. <laughs> 
I just thought of this, uh, just to support your argument there, actually, I was just thinking about how Holmes comes up in the middle of the night to Watson's room, sorry, the crack of dawn to Watson's room saying, get up, we're going to uh, the uh, jail. I, I got a sponge with me. I got an idea. It makes me wonder, did Holmes just spend the night with, with Lady St. Clair? And, and then and then it said, okay, so we're going now. I got a sponge. So we're going to go and solve this case. Or I, I don't know. Oh. It's a, just a theory that popped in my mind. That's interesting. But while, while you mention it, um, I, I, why, don't I, uh, why don't I do that bit now? I wanted to read this out to you, okay? Uh, how ridiculous it was, the whole sponge thing. Um, the editor here, <laughs> Leslie Klinger, he said something quite interesting. Here it is. <clears throat> um, yeah. Whatever Holmes knew about putting on makeup, he seems to have known very little about getting the stuff off. If he thought it could be done in two rubs with a sponge moistened in water, writes D. Martin Dyken. As everyone knows who's ever taken part in theatricals, a very clever, or sorry, a very careful application of cold cream is necessary. Any attempt to remove it with soap and water would have disastrous results. Deccan concludes that Watson must have been exaggerating when describing St. Clair's quick and dramatic transformation. In fact, St. Clair must have presented a decidedly piebald appearance as he told his story. I, I, I agree. And also, I guess that's the fact that um, ACD has a bit of a, of, of a um, well, I guess, almost like a, a, a mulligan there because he can, he can, for mistakes made in his narrative or things that don't make sense, he can always just say, well, Watson just described it incorrectly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He could just use him whenever he wants. And he does that, actually. He does do that at the he beginning. He uses Watson for everything. Watson gets used all the time. He does it at the beginning of one of his stories as well. It's one of these three stories. I can't recall which one it is. Um, but he, he basically says, you know, I've gone on so many crazy adventures and I've gone on so many crazy things with Holmes that uh, if some of these details don't sound quite believable or if they don't add up, then it's really just... Because my memory is, you know, instead of saying I'm a shit writer and I didn't do a good job with this one, he blames it on Watson. <laughs> anyway, I think, yeah, uh, anyway, don't matter. All right, my scoring, Josh, I'm just going to go through it and let you let you do your talking, okay? Um, yeah. Principles, I went 3.5. I enjoyed them, but I didn't think there was anything phenomenal. I liked the idea that Holmes sits down, you know, in this lady's house with a bunch of pillows and sits down and smokes all night and then maybe has a shag with her. We don't know. But he, he gets the, the, the clairvoyance that comes through, you know, meditation and spending the night with a lady, I guess. I like that he wakes up and he's like, oh, shit, all we need to do is wash his face. And that's it. Um, it's kind of silly, but whatever. The investigation is fun. Like, I thought this was I thought this was enjoyable. I understand that we're not dealing with the same gravity as we would have in the past, but I think this is enjoyable. Uh, the perpetrators. Here's the thing, right? Like, technically, Neville St. Clair is a perpetrator, but not for any grand crime. He's just a really shitty husband. And he's generally yes. a pretty despicable guy. Like, he's not breaking a law here. He's just doing some seedy, immoral, not even necessarily immoral, just some seedy stuff to make money. Why he has to be yeah. a shitty husband, I don't know. But it follows because yeah, Ice, Ice, Ice is a shitty husband. And to be fair, Watson's a pretty shitty friend, too. He just throws the guy in a carriage. He doesn't follow him home. He has an enormous trust in the police, to, or sorry, in, in the carriage drivers. I mean... Back in London, in the in the, the seedy east, of, the far east of London, right? You're, you're just going to throw this guy into a carriage and hope that he gets home properly with his money in his pockets and he's high off his kite. Like, who knows what could happen, right? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, yeah. All the men treat the women like crap, but I guess Neville Sinclair is technically the perpetrator. The wife, uh, Mrs. Sinclair, is the victim, but she's also the recipient of some boner love from Holmes. So I don't know that she's really that far off. 
Um, she's certainly the client anyway. But uh, Lascar is cool, and I felt that he'd, if developed more, would be almost a Dickensian Fagin type guy. You know, he'd be cool to read more about in a spinoff. Um, yes. He adds color to the petty criminal dirtiness of London. I thought he was cool. Part of the perpetrator as well, because he shared in what St. Clair was doing. Um, the environment was fun. I liked the descriptions of the opium den and all of the detail we get of London and its seediness. And it, it's cool. The environs are good here in this one. Uh, they're probably better rendered, actually, in this story than in the previous story. But I, yes. like, I like the way the previous story used them a little more, which is why mm. I went 4 here instead of 4.5. And um, I went 3.5 for the, sec uh, the secondary characters because although I'm interested in... Uh, Mrs. St. Clair and Whitney and uh, Whitney and all them—they don't really even do Mary much. to an extent. Yeah, but they don't really do much. Like I could have gone four, but I went. They don't acknowledge you by name anymore. So I went three point five four, three four, and three point five for a total of eighteen. Now the reason I rushed through that is because I've spoken most of the time, and I want to give you the last ten minutes. So fire on, buddy. Uh, you can share your your piece now on the man with the twisted lip. I will just say this in conclusion: while this isn't my highest scoring story of the day. This is the most fun for me to read, this one. I agree. That's how I, that's how I, how I felt, too. I think I'm kind of like, in terms of, of enjoyment, I'm, I'm like um, Man with the Twisted Lip, uh, the, the, the Five Pips, and then the Boscombe Valley Mystery. Okay, so why don't you take me through your pipes? My pipes. So, uh, principles. Um, I found there was strong work from Watson. I liked how he's being presented as a character more independent outside of uh, a Holmes. Like he's he he confines it. Like he lives in his own narrative, in his own world. You know, like he's you know he's living in suburbia with with uh, with, with with Mary there, and you know he's helping out a friend. You know, like um, to get him out of the out of, out, of, out, of, out of the opium den. I like his 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 increased personal a agency. Um, Holmes is a little more mystified and taken aback by the results of this case, and he kind of has a moment of, as I said, Deus sponge machina. That just to me, that just kind of just didn't. He just really, and obviously was apparently diddling the uh, <laughs> the wife. Um, that's, that's my view, buddy. I, I'm, oh, you know, I, I know, I know. I'm just yeah. I'm just presenting here that I just found that like Holmes as a whole was even on top of his game. Yeah, but at the same time, he wasn't really an important part of the narrative, you know, like no. it was more about, about Watson going down and getting caught up in this and then his friend and then, and what, and the mystery of what happened to Mr. St. Clair that really pulled you in. So yeah, I agree. A whole, I agree a hundred percent. It's, this is all about the motivating incident, isn't it? About getting the setting to work for us and then propel a narrative. Exactly. Propelling narrative. That's exactly what it's all about. And the characters don't really, really the main character, the principles, they don't really evolve as such, you know? So I'm going to go with 3.5 on the principles. Um, as for the uh, investigation and going into like the story narrative and the narrative itself, um, it really wasn't really much of one. I, I just kind of just mentioned that. Uh, the, 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 you know, the conceit of the twist was set up by ACD and no one would see it coming. And, not in, and we got Holmes' like, you know, his moment of re, re, revelation. A wizard did it. You know, it, it just to me was kind of cheap in, cheap, cheap in, that, in that fashion. I, I liked the uh, the setup of um, the idea of the of the uh, of the journalist slash beggar, you know, of Boone slash Saint Clair. Um, I found that part an, an interesting element of the story, but to me, it, it wasn't really mind blowing in, in in that sense. So, as in terms of as an investigation, it was kind of weak, but as a story as a whole, I found it really entertaining. 
um, just the seediness of the opium den, um, the whole area of like the mystery itself was was kind of intriguing, but the clues left behind made the investigation kind of weak. So it wasn't really a mystery to solve, more of just kind of a um, you, you're you're more concerned about solving the mystery than you were about following the clues, the the fun of of unraveling it yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I give I, I give you know I, I'm going to be a little generous. I'm going to give the investigation a four. Mm-hmm. I did too. Uh, yeah, for the for the perpetrators, he wasn't really a villain per se, but uh, I don't know. He wasn't really a villain per se, but Saint Clair is definitely has some despicable parts of his nature, and I don't think he realizes it. I, I think he sees himself as a good guy making money, and what's the difference, right? But yeah, I, we're we're looking at it from a modern context, and back then, you know, whatever makes money for your family, what have you, is a little bit dishonest, regardless. And uh, he's a bit of a douche. So let, I, I give he's the perpetrator three point five, but he's nothing. He's nothing really spectacular. Yeah. And. Yeah. I think if his if if he uses like his the makeup and the acting kind of like as a a way that Holmes does in in, in a way in, in, in when when he utilizes them in his cases those um the master of disguise um traits and, and um that factor you know that he uses to solve his cases I think you know if he was a if he was a much evil corrupt man and and embraced that I think Saint Clair could could probably be a quite an antagonist if he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And and the last car, he was set up well, but they never really followed through any more than he was just a, as you said, like a Fagin type. It didn't really get any color any color added to him at all. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get much there. Yeah. So you know, I give the perpetrators. I'm gonna I'm gonna give the perpetrators three point five. Okay. And moving on to the environs, this was the strongest part of the book for me. It was definitely a, a solid five for me. Wow. I okay. I really love the opium den. I, I just loved how London was portrayed and, and going to Lee. Um, I just found the, the environments was just really key to the whole storyline and the atmosphere of it. I want to read to you um, from the um, from the book here about the description of the opium den because I just think it's just uh, fantastic visual imagery. Yeah, it, it is just... a great visual. Go right ahead. But there was no great difficulty in the first stage of my adventure – Upper Swandham Lane is a vile alley lurking behind the high wharves which line the north side of the river to the east of London Bridge. Between a slop shop and a gin shop, approached by a steep flight of steps leading down to a black gap like the mouth of a cave, I found the den of which I was in search. Ordering my cab to wait, I passed down the steps worn hollow in the center by the ceaseless tread of drunken feet, and by the light of a flickering oil lamp above the door, I found the latch and made my way into a long, low room thick and heavy with the brown opium smoke, and terraced with wooden berths like the forecastle of an emigrant ship. Through the gloom, one could dimly catch a glimpse of bodies lying in strange, fantastic poses, bowed shoulders, bent knees, heads thrown back, and chins pointing upward, with here and there a dark, lackluster eye turned upon the newcomer. Out of the black shadows there glimmered a little red circles of light, now bright, now faint, as the burning poison waxed or waned in the bowels of the metal pipes, the most, lay, the most lay silent, but most, some muttered to themselves, and others talked together in strange, low, monotonous voice, their conversation coming in gushes, and then suddenly, tilling off into silence, each mumbling out his own thoughts and paying little heed to the words of his neighbor. At the farther end was a small brazier of burning charcoal, beside which on a three-legged wooden stool there sat a tall, thin old man, with his jaw resting upon his two fists, 
and his elbows upon his knees, staring into the fire. Hmm. And of course, that's Whitey or Whitney. No, I think that was actually Holmes in disguise as an old man. Oh, was man. that Holmes at that point? Okay, yeah, right. <clears throat> I think so. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great, that... great description, and that's not the only one either. In credit to the story, there's more of those types of little flourishes. It's very well described. He definitely has a has a penchant for um, the exotic and uh, just visual imagery. You know, when he really, yeah. but he, I think he really, as you said. ACDC, ACDC, <laughs> <laughs> thunderstruck. Yeah, thunder. He's thunderstruck by it all, and <laughs> I, I think that he, um, uh, I think he really wants to tell a great, um, expansive story, and he's kind of limited with the Sherlock Holmes is like his means to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool. So, what about uh, finishing off then with the supporting players? What'd you go for? Oh, I, I, the supporting players. Um, I know. I, I found that like there was a, there was a strong amount of supporting players in here. You had Mary, you had the Whitneys, you had um, Mrs. St. Clair, you had Neville St. Clair, you had Lascar. I, I gave the I gave the supporting players a solid four. I just found them really colorful and added you know to, 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 to added depth to the story um, in, as, in comparison to the previous stories. Cool. All right. Well, let me do that score up then. We've got for you. Seven and eight is 50. That's a 20 for you, boy. You know what? Each of these stories, we have uh, been one and a half points apart. You're 20 for that. I'm 18.5. You were 25. 20.5 for the Orange Pips. I was 19. You were 18.5 for Boscombe, and I was 17. So, uh, mm. you know, we're, we're, we're finding some difference here. Uh, so yeah. we're, we're still meeting on the same points, but we're finding difference in, of, of opinion somewhere along the line. And different perspectives as well. Yeah, it's been fun. So, next interval or next episode i should say we're going to be looking at uh the three stories the adventure of the blue carbuncle we're going to be looking at the adventure of the speckled band and we're going to be looking at and we're going to be looking at the adventure of the engineer's thumb those are the three stories that we'll take on in our fourth no correction fifth episode yeah that's five that's four episodes down and moving on to the fifth that's pretty crazy it's cool, man, to think of uh, you know how far we've come since this. I mean, I'm just thinking about what I said earlier, you know, and, and not being a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I, I am. I, I think that was incorrect. I am, but I, I'm not a fan in the way that that you are with a capital F. I, did I already say yeah. this? I already said this. I'm starting to repeat myself. No, no, like you're a fan with a capital F. I, I, you're not a fan. With, you're sorry. You're not a fan with the capital F. You, you know, you're you're intrigued and, and you're enjoying it and whatnot and maybe you're becoming a fan more so than already being a fan I that's, think that's right. the difference here. yeah that's the way i'd look at it um I, I feel as though we didn't do twisted lip an, enough credit there was all kinds of interesting um research i came across not just research but also stuff i wanted to talk about with the victorian uh, uh, the society's appropriation of drug culture and the way that the east was viewed in the west and why Conan Doyle would have wanted to write a story like this, but we just, you know, we got we got to keep these shows as economical as we can within regular listening experience, and you know, we're both yes. busy guys, so you know, until we're paid full time for this, um, I, you know, we got to keep it at what it is. But let let it just be known, there's an awful lot of tributaries that you can explore yourselves if you go and read these stories. There, the the opportunity for cultural um, 
understanding and you know for kind of jumping off into different adventures of your own and reading these stories um i think if anything i will say about conan doyle is that he is he's presenting to us with these home stories all kinds of different international features you know and uh, whether it's history or whether it's colonialism or whether it's religion this is a guy that knows a lot and wants to write a lot of you know exciting stuff and you get opportunities to taste these different worlds in his writing so yeah this is I, I really think it would be interesting after we do Sherlock Holmes to maybe explore like some of his novels like The Lost World or mm, could be fun yeah like could the be uh, cuz because there's only two ch- 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 professor challenger books maybe we could, we, could, we could do like a special on the professor challenger it's a nice idea yeah and that i mean that would be writing that he'd probably be a little bit more comfortable with. I mean, he has said himself, hadn't he, that he enjoyed that character the most of the ones he yeah. created. To be honest, I've I read parts of The Lost World I'm like on um, on Gutenberg Press or whatever at work, and uh, Challenger's, Challenger's a bit of, a, of an asshole, actually. <laughs> Is he? Well, okay. More than Holmes, yeah? Oh, yeah, for sure. Holmes, cool. I, Holmes has kind of, I think, a mental or, or a physiological excuse for the way that he is in many ways. Well, we'll have to uh, keep our eye on Holmes and see if the boy bumps his uglies in the next three stories. Yeah, we got to look at keep track and see, you know, like uh, what exact what kind of hanky panky is a guy up to, you know? Mm, and what is his idea of hanky panky? <laughs> well, the guy likes uh, cocaine and he likes uh, dressing up. Dressing up, and <laughs> you never know. And He's if, a kinky you know, guy. Makes you wonder, you know, like. The whole idea of you know that like the modern Sherlock show is presented of 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 Holmes almost being like asexual or almost polysexual is about like why would there be a problem if I was gay you know like he basically asked Watson you know and uh, it yeah. creates an awkward kind of uh, moment in that pilot episode but you know he gets the idea that you know maybe we're maybe even the show in the modern age is kind of hinting at something that's already in the books you know ah, that's a good point yeah. Look, I'm going to close the show tonight with uh, a little bit of Glenn Gould and uh, Leonard Bernstein playing some Schumann. Oh, they got some Canadian and American content mixed in there. Mm, yeah, it's a great recording, and I think this is fitting for the adventures that we've seen today. So once again, uh, or once, I should say, I haven't said it yet, this is Bowman from Dumfries, Scotland, signing off on episode four of Lighten the Pipes. BFG, your goodbye. Yep, this is uh, the BFG, Josh, over here in Ottawa, Canada. Enjoying the uh, the Easter weekend and it's nice weather, no more snow. So I'm going to go out inside and enjoy that. And those who are who are also now out out of the uh, approach of the uh, of of the winter, um, you go out and enjoy yourself as well. And uh, we'll come back in in a month or so and we'll deal with the uh, the next three short stories of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. All right, buddy. And you you steer clear of Sheila's bush. Well, I'll make sure it's at least uh, <laughs> trimmed. Right. Yes. Go, go sends. Go sends
Thank you.